Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum. Que pasa, mi amigos. Mi amo e Wendell Wallace. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin, I hope everybody had a safe Thanksgiving week and weekend. I hope everybody used some common sense. I hope everybody was a little bit unselfish. I hope everybody was a lot unselfish. I hope everybody was thinking about someone other than themselves when they were gathering for their Thanksgiving feast. I hope that the crowds and I hope the guests were kept to a minimum. I am anxious to hurry up and get back to some type of normalcy in this world. I don't want to be delaying. I don't want to be uh, having any more uh, barriers put on my ability to enjoy what I was doing before this virus came abroad and just devastated this country like it has. So I hope everybody is listening to the experts. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do so we can get back to some type of normalcy sooner rather than later because the spikes for the COVID was supposed to be rising after the Thanksgiving weekend. So let's prove the, let's prove everybody wrong and let's come out of this with some hope that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, which means the freedom of what we could be doing in terms of no more wearing masks or vaccines or whatever, man. Let's just see what we can do to have some common sense, to use some common sense so we can go ahead with our lives as normal. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things that I want to discuss today, mainly going to be saving the bulk of the football talk until later on in the week. Yes, I'll get into Kansas City and Tampa Bay. Yes, I'll get into Tennessee and Indianapolis. Yes, I'll get into the quarterbackless Denver Broncos versus the New Orleans. States. I'll get into all of that. I'll get into college football, what's going down with Ohio State. I'll get into college football, the Iron Bowl between Auburn and Alabama, and Mick Saban missing that game. I'll get into all of the postponements and cancellations of Week 13 in college football. I think it's now at, uh, what was it last weekend? It was 18, right? This uh, past weekend in college football, which brings the total of games canceled or postponed this season in college football to 100. I'll get into all that, but I want to spend the majority of my time on this podcast speaking about some of the things that caught my eye, not only just with the pro football games that I watched, but also when I get into, of course, the season opening game of my beloved Georgetown Hoyas, a 70-62 victory over UMBC, that's University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I have my thoughts and opinions about that and their next opponent, which they'll be playing on Tuesday, December 1st, first at the McDonough Arena the Navy midshipmen. So all of those things I'm going to be getting into today on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. So I was watching the game Thanksgiving Day. First of all, terrible win for my Washington football team. Just horrible. Horrible. At the time, they were in first place. Now they've got four wins. I'm, I'm giving up on the notion that we can go ahead and get Justin Fields. Failing for fields, that hashtag is 
looking bleaker and bleaker. Dallas looked horrible. Looked like we have a pretty good running back in Antonio Gibson. Looked like we might have some pieces. But man, we could put some of those pieces, the running back, Terry McLaurin, uh, the wide receiver. We could put some of uh, some some of those skilled players from the running back and wide receiver position with Washington around that potential franchise quarterback. The way the Jets are playing, the Jets aren't going to win another game, man. The Jets are going 0-16. I think the Jets are determined to go 0-16. One of the reasons, again, why they haven't fired Adam Gates. They might actually win a game. And with Jacksonville only winning one game so far this season, the New York Jets can't afford to be losing any more games. So in that respect, they're doing the right thing by keeping Adam Gates for them going 0-16 and then being in the position to draft Clemson's quarterback, Trevor Lawrence. But uh, the number two pick looks like it's going to be Jacksonville. Now they are three games ahead of uh, the Washington Snyder skins in terms of the number two pick in the draft. So, you know, bad weekend. Bad weekend for the uh, Washington football team moving forward. I mentioned before, man, don't give me 6-10. and 10, Don't give me 5-11. and 11, And don't give me this talk about, hey, we're tied for first place in the NFC East with the New York Giants. Well, because New York beat us twice, the Giants are in first place in the NFC East, but in terms of records are concerned, you know, both teams being four and seven. Oh boy, we have a chance. Oh my goodness, wouldn't this be fantastic? And wouldn't this be wonderful to get a playoff berth at six and ten? Or be in the mix at five and eleven? No! I don't want the number seven pick. No! I don't want the number ten pick. No! I don't want to be in a position to choose between Trey Lance, Zach Wilson, and Mac Jones. No, I don't want that, man. I'm looking down the road. I'm looking for 2022-2023 with the Washington Inept skins, with the dysfunctional skins. I'm not interested in seeing what Alex Smith can do so we can bring him back on a one-year deal. I'm not having a reunited and it feels so good next season with uh, head coach Ron Rivera and Cam Newton. No, I'm not looking for the inept skins, the dysfunctional skins, the embarrassing skins, the... Washington football team to try to make a trade for Jacoby Brissett or or uh, Tyrod Taylor to bring in to be the quarterback for the next couple of years? No. While we go ahead and draft an offensive lineman or draft a uh, wide receiver at the number nine and number 11 pick? No. Or a safety? No. I want a franchise quarterback. And if we can't get Trevor Lawrence, because the Jets are firmly in position to get that pick, to hold that pick. And as I mentioned before, the way they play, they ain't giving that up. So if I can't get Trevor Lawrence, and we can't tank for Trevor, and we can't be uh, terrible for Trevor, and we can't be losing for Lawrence, then let's fail for Fields. Because it ain't about 2020 with the Washington football team. It ain't about 2021. If we're going to be getting good... If we want to be where we need to be, we need to have that franchise quarterback rip-roaring, ready to go by at least the 2022 season. I don't know too much about Trey Lance. I've seen Matt Jones play, and I haven't seen Zach Wilson play yet, but I don't know, man. I just, uh, that, that, that game against the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day just broke my heart because I just saw the opportunity to draft that quarterback move farther and farther away, but... We'll see what happens. I mean, Washingtonians are up here talking about we're in first place. Big fucking deal. Four and seven in the worst conference in the in the in the league. One of the worst conferences or the conference 
that has been the worst. I can't think of a, a conference going back years that have been as inept and embarrassing as the NFC East this season. But, you know, I mean, hey, I'm, I don't blame the players. I don't blame the coaches. They're there to win games, so I, I get it. And th- that's their job. That's what they're employed to do. And you put your resume out there on tape. That's what you've got. So if you're out there quitting or you're out there not giving it at all, Believe me, number one, you won't be with the Washington football team anymore, and it's going to be pretty hard for any of those guys to latch on to another team if they have a piss-poor effort or if they're doing what I want them to do, tank, fail, lose, so we can get ourselves a franchise quarterback. The fan is thinking, go ahead, lose all your games so I can get myself a quarterback. The players are saying, even if we are going to lose, I'm going to give my best because if I'm not going to be here, I still need to feed my family. I still need to keep a roof over my head. I still need to have my bills paid. I still need to take care of my family members. I still need to live a lifestyle which I've been accustomed to, which is living with a high six or seven figure salary. So yeah, I'm not going to be giving that up just so some punk ass Wendell Wallace can sit there and celebrate like cool in the gang when he gets the opportunity to uh, draft um, Justin Fields because we finished the season four and 12. Fuck you on that one. I get it. I understand it, but <sighs> devastating. One of the games, so I watched that game. One of the games I also watched on Thanksgiving was Houston beating up on Detroit 41-25. J.J. Watt, huh? J.J. <laughs> Watt talking about, I want to leave, I want to leave, I want to leave. Or a winner. Well, I mean, the Houston Texans are either going to have a dilemma on their hands, depending upon how the season is going to be going, um, are they going to keep J.J. Watt, or if he continues to play this well, is he going to be some very nice trade bait for a team looking to uh, go ahead and do some things, thinking about the Tennessee Titans? But J.J. Uh, Watt in the game against Detroit on Thanksgiving Day had a pick six, his first one since 2014. Uh, Will Fuller, the wide receiver for Houston, he had... Six receptions for 171 yards, two touchdowns, including a 40-yard touchdown uh, catch. I really want to focus on this player, Deshaun Watson, who threw for 318 yards, four touchdowns, had a passer rating of 150.4. I think the perfect passer rating is like 158.3. Watson was at 150.4, 17 of 25, no, no interceptions, Ran a couple of times, five times for 27 yards. So, look, I'm not here to say Deshaun Watson should win the MVP. I know every week it seems like I'm putting in somebody else as far as MVP consideration is concerned. Started off with Russell Wilson, was speaking about Josh Allen. Then I moved to Tom Brady. Recently, I was talking about Kyler Murray of the Arizona Cardinals. And it seems like every week I'm putting somebody else in there. Ben Roethlisberger should be mentioned. Aaron Rodgers, of course, should be mentioned uh, or should be highly considered the way Aaron Rodgers is playing. He just tore up the uh, Chicago Bears. But I think Deshaun Watson, I'm not saying he should win the MVP. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is his play so far demands that he be mentioned in the discussion through 11 weeks of this NFL season. Who knows what's going to be happening moving forward. But his stats through 10 games so far, you're talking about a guy who doesn't have himself a true number one wide receiver. If you take a look at all of the other quarterbacks who are being considered, Patrick Mahomes has Tyreek Hill. I'll get into the explosion that Tyreek Hill had against the um, 
Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You're talking about Tom Brady has a plethora of some really good receivers. You're speaking about Chris Godwin and Mike Evans and Rod Gronkowski and two pretty good uh, running backs and Leonard Fournette and, and, uh, and the kid Jones. You're speaking about Aaron Rodgers now with Devontae Adams back. He seems to have been elevating his play. Green Bay has a nice group of young receivers. Kyler Murray benefiting from the uh, expertise of DeAndre Hopkins, who was with the Houston Texans. Eh, don't want to put salt in that wound, but you see the impact that Watkins, that, uh, excuse me, that uh, Hopkins have, has had um, on the Arizona Cardinals. So all of these players or all of these quarterbacks who are up for MVP consideration, DK Metcalf with the Seattle Seahawks being the main target for Russell Wilson, along with Tyler Lockett and others. Deshaun Watson doesn't have any of those guys like that. Will Fuller is nice. They just let go of Brandon Cook. Um, it's going to let him go ahead and try to uh, play for a winner. But Deshaun Watson doesn't have that number one all-pro, all-star wide receiver. But yet through tw- uh, 10 games, he's completing about 69% of his passes. He's throwing for over 2,800 yards. He's averaging 8.5 yards per attempt, 20 touchdowns, 5 interceptions, and he's also rushed for 269 yards, 2 touchdowns, and he hasn't lost a fumble. And you speak about a guy who's now starting to elevate his play ever since Romeo Cornell came on after Bill O'Brien was fired, Cornell being the interim head coach. In his last 6 games, he's thrown 15 touchdown passes without getting picked off once. In his last 9 games, he has a 22-3 touchdown to uh, interception ratio. Look, I know because for a long time the Houston Texans absolutely stunk. That was easy to forget about how well Deshaun Watson has been playing. And really, it's been kind of out of sight, out of mind with some of these other quarterback stories percolating to the top in terms of discussion points, how Deshaun Watson's play could, you know, be minimized or even forgotten. Because as I mentioned before, the irrelevance of Houston as a, a playoff contender so far through the season. But let's not forget with the lack of talent compared to the other MVP candidates that Deshaun Watson has around him, that this kid is just balling. And give it up, special dedication going out to Romeo Cornell. Look, at 73 years old and being black in the NFL, that's not going to warrant him getting a, a head coaching job. Houston is going to be moving on to somebody else. I don't care if Romeo continues to win games because in their last four, they're three and one. And they went from... They went from one and six now to four and seven with a outside miracle shot of winning or getting a, uh, uh, you know, being in contention for a playoff berth or being in contention, contention of sniffing the AFC South. And if it wasn't for, you know, a missed two point opportunity, they would have beaten the uh, Tennessee Titans, their only loss during that time. So if they're not winning games during the four game stretch, with Romeo Cornell at the head coach and Deshaun Watson playing out of his mind, they're a two-point conversion away from being 4-0 and and really being considered in terms of the teams that are rising up to uh, talk about playoff contentions. I know one thing, if the Houston Texans were in the NFC least, they would be the best team there. They would be better than them Cowboys. They would be better than them, them Snyder Skins. They'd be better than the Philadelphia Eagles. They'd be very... They'd be very much improved and better than the New York Giants. I know that for sure. So look, the Texans are three and a half games behind Indy and Tennessee in the AFC South, all right? So if you take a look, the Texans play the Bears, who should be starting, could be starting, might be starting, Mitchell Trubisky. They play the Cincinnati Bengals. They won't have Joe Burrow. 
They played the Indianapolis Colts, tough game, and they played the Tennessee Titans, tough game, but they played them well on the road over the last five weeks of the season. So that's their schedule. The Bears, the Bengals, the Colts, and the Tennessee Titans. Only one of those teams, Cincinnati, currently sits below 500. If Watson can get Houston to 7-9 and nine, with the way that he's playing, with the talent that he, has, that he has around him, with the way the season started, it would be remarkable. It would be one of the stories that we needed to talk about. Now, if everything was kosher, if everything was correct, if everything, if everybody did the right thing like Spike Lee, Patrick Mahomes would be the MVP of the league. But as I mentioned before, we're always looking for new stories. And as some guys come and go in terms of, ooh, for a minute, this guy might be doing something, and then they have a bad game, or their team might be faltering or something like that, and, and uh, the Kansas City defending champions just continue to win, win, win. The other contenders are going to fall by the wayside, and the way Patrick Mahomes is playing, he's going to be winning, he's going to be winning the MVP. But man, let's, let's not forget how great Deshaun Watson is. I, when the season started, the opening game of the season, you know, Kansas City versus the uh, Houston Texans, I said this was a situation where we could be looking at a similar situation as Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady for the next 10 or 12 years. This could be Watson versus Mahomes. This could be the next generation's Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady. And then, and again, as the Titans continue to lose, and hey, look, I'm excuse me, the uh, Texans continue to look, lose, and they played a pretty tough schedule, as you're speaking about. They opened up with Kansas City, then they played Pittsburgh, and then they played uh, Tennessee, and they played a really tough, tough schedule. So now they're on the back end, and they're going to be playing, you know, they're going to be having their opportunities. But Watson was that guy who I thought, I mean, Mahomes is head and shoulders above everybody else. If Mahomes is Jordan in 1992, then... You know, then um, Deshaun Watson is Clyde Drexler or something like that. But if you're speaking about a quarterback in the game, who would you like to have for the next five to seven years? Let's just talk about from this moment on to the 2028 season. If you could pick a quarterback, which one would it be? Now, I know Mahomes is going to be number one, but how many people would pick, pick someone like a Justin Herbert or a Josh Allen or a Kyler Murray or Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, Derek Carr, Jared Goff, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields? How many of those, how many people would pick one of those guys before Deshaun Watson? Because if you say any of those guys before you said Deshaun Watson, you haven't been paying attention to how well Deshaun has been playing quarterback. So I'm not, again, I'm not up here saying that we need to have Deshaun Watson be in serious, serious consideration for the MVP. The team hasn't won enough games and you got Patrick Mahomes in the same league as Watson. Oops, sorry. That's not going to be happening if we're being, if we're being for real here. But I just think the way that that guy's been playing, especially over the last couple of games, if he continues to play that way, hey man, let's give some love. Let's give some respect. Let's get some consideration. Let's get some admiration to Deshaun Watson and mention him in the discussion if we're speaking about who's going to be the league MVP.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everything is going well in your world. I hope everybody's doing what they need to do to make this world a better place to be. I hope everybody's doing what they do need to do to forward this country, forward this world, forward your neighborhood in a positive, loving way. Let's see what happens. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do to uh, try to try to do that, shall we? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about some NFL news, the NFL announced on Friday the Pittsburgh-Baltimore game has been rescheduled to Tuesday night at 8 p.m. because of the ongoing COVID-19 situation within the Ravens organization. The game is going to be broadcast on NBC. Now, the game, Baltimore and Pittsburgh, should have been played on Thanksgiving night, uh, prime time slot, but it was moved to uh, Sunday, but still some situations happened. So let's just move it back a couple of more days. So they rescheduled it for Tuesday. So week 13's game between Baltimore and Dallas, originally slated for Thursday, is going to be moved. Where is it going to be moving it to? They're going to be moving it to Monday, December 7th, and that's going to start at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Fox and the NFL Network. That game was originally slated to be the primetime slot, but again, it was postponed because of the COVID issues concerning Baltimore. So, you know, with the situation yet to be resolved, the league moved the game one more time, blah, blah, blah. So 18 players, 18 players for Baltimore tested positive for COVID-19, including reigning NFL MVP quarterback Lamar Jackson. Damn, fellas, what exactly are you doing? I know there was a report earlier in the week that there was a strength coach who was walking around the facilities not wearing a mask and doing things that he wasn't supposed doing things that he wasn't supposed to be doing in terms of keeping everybody safe. How does that motherfucker still have a goddamn job? Come on, bro, you're not just you're just putting other you're just not putting yourself in danger. I mean, just from a selfish standpoint, the NFL is hurting because of that. So now Thursday night, when you had a game that was scheduled to go. A team like the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was known nationwide, that was uh, that was now postponed because of your selfishness and your ineptitude. Come on, man. And then you put guys like Lamar Jackson and Risk and other players at risk. What exactly are you doing? So Jackson was ruled out for Sunday's game. We, we still don't know if he's going to be able to play. Well, he's not going to be able to play against the Steelers. So RG3 of Washington Snyderskin's fame is going to be the starting quarterback. So the Ravens believe that Lamar was infected on Sunday, not when he took snaps from the center, because it was like, well, yeah, okay, the center tested positive, and it was like, well, you know, Lamar being under center, blah, blah, blah. So wait a minute. So if Lamar tested positive because of that, then how come none of his other linemates tested positive at the same time? How come the guys that he was lining up against when they were playing against in Tennessee, why hasn't any of those linemen been tested positive for COVID-19? So that rumor has been somewhat debunked. They think that Jackson got the uh, got the COVID because he was in close contact with J.K. Dobbins and Mark Ingram, whose locker is right next to theirs. And those guys, after the game against Tennessee, they tested positive. So... That's where people are thinking this is where Lamar Jackson got the uh, virus from. That's how he uh, contracted the virus. The NFL's network, Tom uh, Plessarero, reported, based on the timeline, Jackson could possibly be, be available to play against the Cowboys. And the eight Ravens players placed on the COVID-19 list this week 
have totaled 45 starts in over 2,200 snaps this season. So if you want to be funny and lose your money, then I would suggest that, uh, you know, you put it on the Ravens. But uh, it's going to be a yeoman's-like task. So as of Friday, Baltimore now has had five straight days of positive tests. Again, what the hell is going on in that locker room? What the hell is going on with that organization? What the hell is going on at Ravens Park? The coronavirus has spread throughout the organization, affecting players, coaches, support staff. If, is this going to be a situation where the NFL needs to come down and start levying some fines? To be like, look, man, y'all do this bullshit one more time. Guess what? There's going to be some draft picks being taken away from you. There's going to be some heavy fines being levied on you. You got to do something now. But that's ridiculous. Especially now that Ravens, they're at a crossroads in terms of where their season's going to go. The team has lost three of its last four, playing Pittsburgh with a backup quarterback and a second string running back. So we could be looking at a Baltimore Ravens team that could be six and five and deeper out of the playoff picture. Because as it stands now in the AFC playoffs, you've got the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Buffalo Bills, the new uh, Indianapolis, oh, sorry, the uh, Tennessee Titans, the Indianapolis Colts, the Cleveland Browns, and the Las Vegas Raiders. Those guys are in the playoffs with the Ravens and the Miami Dolphins and the Denver Broncos on the outside looking in. Now, all of that being said, if all of those guys can come back and play against Dallas, that's going to be their next game uh, after the Pittsburgh game for the Ravens. I still think Baltimore has the best chance to make the playoffs. Because again, after Pittsburgh, they're only going to face one team with a winning record, which is the Cleveland Browns, which Baltimore beat up on 38-6 to the opening game of the uh, year. And as we've seen, even though Cleveland is 8-3, and they're the most, they're the most, I don't know, I wouldn't say fraudulent. Fraudulent is not maybe a good word, but they're the most, uh, you know, unattractive 8-3 team that I've seen. Another game where they just squeaked by. They had to hold on to beat Jacksonville uh, this Sunday. So the remaining schedule for Baltimore after Pittsburgh, you've got Dallas, then they're at Cleveland, then Jacksonville 1-9, the Giants 4-7, Cincinnati, what, they're 3-7-1 three, three, or some nonsense like that. So if you take a look at the combined records of those teams, they're 17-36-1. And, and one game, and right now, Baltimore is one game behind Cleveland for second place in the AFC North. So I'd look at that schedule, then I'd look at Cleveland's schedule, which is Jacksonville, Tennessee, Baltimore, the Giants, and the Jets. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting moving forward. But I think when everything is all said and done, I think that the Ravens are going to be there, man. But you don't want to be tempted fate. And if the Ravens are going to go through week after week after week of guys testing positive, I mean, yeah, those games look very winnable if you're speaking about Dallas, if you're speaking about the Giants, if you're speaking about the Bengals, if you're speaking about Cleveland, if you're speaking about all those other teams that you're going to be facing. But, but still, if you keep bullshitting around and Sunday's games get changed to Tuesday and they move somewhere else and this, that, and the other, and Lamar gets uh, COVID again or some other important player gets COVID again, then we don't know what's going to be happening. Well, this coach might get COVID. We don't know exactly what's going to be going on. So, yeah, Jacksonville, the Giants, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Dallas, those should be, that should be a four and one record moving, moving forward, which would get them, what, 10 and six, something like that? Should put them in position for the playoffs, but Baltimore better stop bullshitting around, man. And what a difference 
a season mates for those guys. Last year, they were 14-2. and two. They were the best team in the NFL. They had the NFL's best offense. They led the league in rushing by nearly, nearly 1,000 yards because Lamar was running for over 1,500 yards. They scored the most points per game, 33. Uh, Jackson had the best total QBR in the league, won the MVP at the age of 22. He was going to, you know, just blow everybody's mind. The fact that this guy was a dual threat, I mean, a dual threat, I mean, a real dual threat quarterback. And at the age of 22, and we saw the athleticism, one of the greatest athletes who's ever played the quarterback position at that time, maybe in the history. Now he's going to be coming back with a little bit more seasoning in terms of improving his passing from the pocket. We were taking a look at a Baltimore team that was clearly going to be one of the elite teams in the NFL and be one of the favorites to make it to the Super Bowl. But those stats that I just mentioned, those were 2019. Uh, 2020, the season heading into week 12, the Ravens on offense, they're ranked 21st in yards per play, 24th in yards per game. And they're scoring the dip from 33 points to 27 points. And Lamar Jackson, his QBR is down to 62.3. That puts him 23rd among quarterbacks. Now, Baltimore still leads the league in rushing, but his per game rushing average is only six is only 160 yards. That's down from 206 a year ago because Lamar's not getting those big chunks of yardage. He's not getting those high uh, rushing totals like he did the year before. Defensive coordinators now have had an off season to really go ahead and study Jackson and to put some barriers in front of what he did before. And while I think Lamar has done a, I think Lamar has improved. I don't think he's regressed. I don't think he's. Carson Wentzing his career right now, but he hasn't gotten to the point to the point where you know he's going to be the guy where who can who can have a better season than he did last year. It's just not going to be happening. I think as Lamar continues to grow, continues to mature into a quarterback where he can be still effective when he's 31, 32, 35, aka staying more in the pocket as he continues to develop that game, there's just some pieces around him that hasn't been able to step up like they did last year. A couple of guys on the offensive line, I think the uh, offensive, uh, I think the center for the Ravens, he retired, which uh, affected the um, affected the uh, offense for the Ravens. There's some other things that were going down with that. So, yeah, I don't think Lamar Jackson's overrated. I don't know what the, I mean, I don't know exactly when you say Lamar Jackson's overrated. I've, I've heard that uh, reasoning. I've heard that uh, thought process in terms of what's wrong with Lamar, what's wrong with Lamar. I think Lamar had an outstanding year. I think Lamar, from a statistical standpoint, I think he had a, 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 a season for the ages. But then again, these guys in the offseason, these defensive coordinators in the offseason, now they have some real tape. 2019 was the first year that Lamar Jackson played the entire season for the Baltimore Ravens. So now these guys who are defending, who are going to be trying to scheme against Lamar Jackson, these guys now have 16 games plus to see his weaknesses, to see his tendencies right now as a young quarterback. And at 23 years old, as I mentioned before, he's still maturing. He's still growing. So there's nothing wrong with Lamar Jackson in terms of, well, I mean, is he now on the downward spiral or now is he just, you know, that one year with a fluke or anything like that? No, I think right now Lamar is building a foundation. 
But Lamar right now is just going through the struggles that every other quarterback in league history has. I mean, even the great Tom Brady year after year after year wasn't the Tom Brady that we know. Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers. It seems like the only quarterback who hasn't had that little bump or little dip in the road has been Patrick Mahomes. And this is only, what, the third year starting? Give him some time. So Lamar Jackson, long-term, is going to be fine. Lamar Jackson is teaching, is learning right now how to be a quarterback whose attributes include incredible athleticism. I think when everything is all said and done in three or four years, when we speak about Mahomes and Josh Allen and Deshaun Watson and Kyler Murray and Trevor Lawrence, that next generation of quarterbacks who are going to be leading this league, I think that you can put right there with them and very close to the top. Still, I think that you're going to be able to put Lamar Jackson. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Hello, is it me you're looking for? Enough singing. All right, man, let's talk about some uh, NFL games on Sunday of importance. Well, the main game that I'm going to be talking about, the Kansas City defending champions, improving to 10-1 with a 27-24 victory over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tyreek Hill, um, Todd Bowles, love you, still think that you should be a candidate for head coaching jobs, but boy. Uh, you might want to put uh, double coverage on Tyreek Hill. Finished with 269 yards, three touchdowns on 13 catches. Touchdown passes of or catches of 75, 44, and 20 yards. Out of the 269 yards that he had for the game, 203 of those came in the first quarter. Yeah, might want to double team. Might want to move the safety a little bit closer, a little bit over to Tyreek Hill. Patrick Mahomes, again, had another fabulous day. Again, the MVP of the league. Let's not be clever. Let's not try to outthink ourselves. Let's not try to be cute. Patrick Mahomes is the best football player on the planet, at least for the quarterback position. 37 for 49, 462 yards, three touchdowns, 359 of those yards came in the first half. Oh, I thought it was a good performance by Kansas City, but... After the first quarter where they jumped out to a 17-0 lead, and it really should have been 21-0 that they weren't fucking around and getting a little bit too cute. Um, after that first quarter performance, I guess you could say that their performance was inconsistent, uneven, maybe a little bit unfocused. I thought that early on in the fourth quarter, at the end of the third quarter, I thought Kansas City kind of took the pedal off the metal when they were up 27 to 10, kind of went into cruise control, shut it down a little bit if I could keep keep using those cliches. 
But as I mentioned before, it was the first drive of the game. I mean, I was a little bit shocked that Andy Reid went ahead and kicked a 19-yard field goal on fourth down and one when really two of those plays were just kind of like, oh, now you're just fucking around. Now, now that's just, now you're just showing no respect to Tampa Bay and the defensive coordinator and all those fellas. Because from the one-yard line, Kansas City tried some double reverse with Travis Kelsey doing an option pass to Patrick Mahomes. I mean, that's just that's just downright rude, man. And then I think they, they tried another pass on third down. I mean, that's just downright not happening. That's just downright disrespectful. So the through the first nine minutes of the game, Mahomes had 142 yards passing. 130 of, of them went to Hill, mainly on those bombs. And Kansas City led 20 to 7 at the half. But if you were watching that game, didn't you think the score should have been more like 28 to 7 or 31 to 7 or something like that? If you took a look at the uh, stats, Kansas City ran 42 plays. Tampa Bay only had 22 in the first two quarters. Kansas City outgained Tampa Bay 377 yards to 131. Again, Tampa Bay coming out slowly again, just like they did against the Rams in that first quarter. I don't think that they had a first down or maybe they had one first down. Their first couple of possessions were a one, two, three kick. And you would go into the half thinking that Kansas City was well ahead, but you know, you still have Tom Brady. You still have that offense and there were only two scores down despite being so dominant in the first half statistically. Then as I mentioned before in the fourth quarter, Kansas City was up 27 to 10. They just seemed to relax. Offensive line started holding on almost every other play. The defense committed a couple of roughing the passer penalties. Tom Brady was getting into a rhythm despite throwing two interceptions. The offense kind of bogged down a little bit. They had multiple three and outs. Um, and it just gave, I mean, one of the, I think the longest drive that Kansas City had in the second half was mainly because they would make a first down and then they would get a holding penalty. One of the uh, offensive linemen would get a holding penalty. So it seemed like the Ravens ran, not the Ravens, excuse me, the uh, Kansas City ran like five or six or seven minutes off the clock in the fourth quarter. And mainly one of the reasons why that was happening was they kept on getting penalties. So it was, it was. Uh, I mean, I don't care who won the, won the game, but it was just kind of like, hmm. If I'm a Kansas City fan, I'm like, come on, y'all. Had that bend but break defense, but if you're going to be so inept in terms of uh, paying attention to detail, Tom Brady, the Buccaneers got their act together, scored a couple of touchdowns to make it 27-24, Kansas City in the lead with four minutes to go. And then Mahomes, in his third year, right now in his fourth year, going on his fourth year, third year as a starting quarterback, Put the game away with the scrambling for first downs. That forced Tampa Bay to use their timeouts. And then on a third down play after the uh, two-minute warning, threw a, uh, threw a uh, uh, pass to Tyreek Hill for the first down. Tyreek kept both feet in over on the uh, left sidelines to run out the clock. And there you go. So Kansas City won their sixth straight game, clinched their seventh 10-win season in eight years under Andy Reid, improved the 6-0 on the road. They've won nine, nine straight games away from home going all the way back to next year or last year. Look, I understand that Pittsburgh is undefeated. I understand that, hey, you know what? As long as the team is undefeated, you go ahead and you have to put them number one. No, nah, man, Kansas City is the best team in the league. Kansas City is the best team in the league by far. And yeah, their defense sometimes can make you a little bit nervous. And yes, I know that the Las Vegas Raiders put 71 points on that defense in those two games that they played. But... 
Kansas City is the best team in the NFL. They've got the best player. Now they've got Andy Reid, who's won that championship, got that off their back. They have that continuity. They remain, except for the offensive line, but for the most part, as far as the key uh, players are concerned, they're they're injury-free or they're able to play at the maximum um, compared to others. Kansas City is the best team in the league. And it's just a matter of, remember earlier in the year when they had that showdown sort of kind of with the Baltimore Ravens on the road? It seems like every, it seems like every time there's once, there, there, there wants to be a, hey, this team could do this and this team could do that for them to them, give them a game or this, that, and the other. Kansas City answers the bell if I could use that cliche and lets them know, lets everybody know who the best team in the league is. So the, the game against Tampa was uneven, far from perfect. Again, thought they were going to blow them out after the opening quarter. But you know what? A win is a win is a win is a win. And that goes for any time in the NFL, but it's picked, uh, especially during this time and what's going down and what's going around in this season. <laughs> Most definitely get a win, get out of town and see who you're going to play, see when you're going to play and get ready to play for next week. Kansas City, 10 and 1, might not have the best record in the league. Do not care. The, the defending champions of Kansas City are the best team. It's the best team in the NFL. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down. A lot of things that we're talking about. Today in the world of sports, just a reminder, in just a couple of more days, I'm going to be putting out a podcast where I'm going to be going more in depth in terms of what was happening in the NFL, talking about the quarterback-less Denver Broncos, talking about where does Tampa Bay go from here, talking about the Tennessee Titans. By the time I do the but do my next podcast, I'll be able to talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens, where those teams are going to be going, depending upon the outcome of Tuesday's game. So a lot of NFL things I'm going to be talking about more in depth. And also in college football, I want to get into that also. But mainly for this podcast, what I've been doing is just picking and choosing, selecting uh, what I want to get down and talk about. Talked about Deshaun Watson for MVP consideration. Not true. I think Patrick Mahomes is the clear head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of the MVP race. Yeah, I know I started off with Russell Wilson. Yeah, I know I mentioned Josh Allen. Yeah, I know I threw in Tom Brady. Yeah, I know I started talking about Kyler Murray for MVP and what he needs to do if this happens and that happens. But man, it's almost like with Patrick Mahomes, we're almost taking this man for granted. In fact, we're not almost. We are taking this man for granted. With the stats that he's putting up, the impact that he's having... Patrick Mahomes could win the MVP for the next five to seven years straight if he continues to do what he's doing. And we're talking about a league where you have such superstars as Aaron Donald and Derrick Henry and Aaron Rodgers just playing well and all of these great players. But it's like you have those players who are fantastic. You have those players who are Hall of Fame or potential Hall of Fame players. And then you have over all of those guys. Patrick Mahomes, a level, a level or two above. Even someone like an Aaron Rodgers who put on a masterful performance earlier tonight against the uh, woeful Chicago Bears. But, you know, and this is what I want to get into with Mahomes. He's building a resume that's going to put him with the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played. If you think about his first three years as being a starting quarterback for the Kansas City defending champions. But I, I think it's a little bit too early 
in his career to reserve a table with the greatest QBs who's ever played or even go into that discussion? I mean, how do you talk about a guy who's been in the league four years, who's been a starting quarterback for three years, despite the fact of everything that he's done to say, okay, now we're going to talk about him, his career in totality with someone like a Tom Brady who's played 20 years and won six uh, championships. And we're speaking about Johnny Unitas. We're speaking about John Elway. And we're speaking about Joe Montana. And we're speaking about all of these great quarterbacks, Hall of Famers like Warren Moon and Hall of Famers like Dan Fowles and Hall of Famers like Dan Marino. And kind of hard after four years to sit up there and say, yeah, Patrick Mahomes deserves to be, be in the same VIP section as those guys as of right now, uh, November 29th, the year 2020. But I will say this. I think this is a better argument to have. Has there been a better? Has there been a quarterback in the history of the game that has had a better start to his career than Patrick Mahomes? I mean, if you take a look at it, you know all the great Hall of Fame quarterbacks like Unitas and Montana and Brett Favre and Rodgers and Brady and all of these guys. Yeah, they're great and everything like that in their totality of their careers. But man, did anybody start off like this? Has anybody come in? Basically, I know Kurt Warner came in, but you know, but he had played a little bit in NFL Europe. He had played in the Arena League, so he had a little, he had a little, you know, experience. He's had some wrinkles, you know, in the face and his in his fingers. I mean, there was some age to him by the time he came in and replaced um, the uh, starter for the St. Louis Rams, Trent Green, in that exhibition game. So I'm talking about a guy who was this young. And it's green in terms of coming into his professional career of playing football as Mahomes. Has there been any better anybody better? The only thing the only person I can even compare him to in terms of his first couple of years as a quarterback in the league being as successful, as impactful, is Dan Marino. What he did in his first two years of the league in nineteen eighty three and eighty four. If you remember, the nineteen eighty three season for Marino, the guy was unbelievable. Had a 96% passer rating, was selected to the Pro Bowl, had the lowest percentage of passes intercepted with 2.03. He was the only quarterback to lead the conference in passing. He had the highest passing completion percentage at 58.45. The Dolphins finished with a record of 12-4 and before losing to Seattle in the AFC Divisional Playoffs. So that was one deal. So he came in. I mean, here was a guy coming out of Pittsburgh. He fell. Everybody was talking about what's going on. How did he fall so far? There was... uh. Rumors that he was, uh, you know, dealing with drugs or any some some nonsense like that. So he fell all the way to Miami. And Don Shula was like, called the head coach at Pittsburgh and was like, what the hell is going on? This guy should have been selected long before. He was drafted by Miami in the 20s. And the Pittsburgh coach said, you know, coach, ain't nothing wrong with them. If you want them, you got them. And Don Shula was like, yeah, we'll get them. And we saw what happened. So that was the 1983-4, season. Then... In the 1984 season, Marino really took off. You could arguably say he had one of the greatest seasons in NFL history. He broke six NFL full-season passing records, including the record for most touchdown passes in the season, most passing yardage in the season. He was selected as the NFL's most valuable player, led the Dolphins to a 14-2 and record, clinched home field advantage, and then took it up a notch once the playoffs started in the first round where he beat Seattle 31-10. to He threw four, three touchdowns, 262 yards. And then the next week in the AFC Championship game against the Mark Malone-led Pittsburgh Steelers, he said, oh, you guys are going to pass on me? Here I was, I went to uh, college in Pittsburgh. I was born in that area. And you guys are going to pass on me for some offensive lineman in the first round the year before or a defensive lineman, one of those two. 
You're really gonna pass me? You gonna you're gonna select him and not draft me? Oh, okay. Well, let me show you what you missed out on. Marino set the passing game record for 421 yards, four touchdowns. Both of those records still stand, by the way, as of this season. So those first two years, and then after that, third, fourth, fifth, and then moving on, you know, Marino had over 4,000 yards, 4,500 yards. The man threw for 5,000 yards, where I guess you could say in the year 2020, that would be the equivalent of somebody throwing for about 6,500 yards in today's game with all the adjustments uh, that they've made for the passing game. So Marino in his second year just set the league on fire. It's the same thing with Patrick Mahomes. We've never seen this before, man. This is a guy in the third year starting at the quarterback who has the responsibility and the trust of the coach and Andy Reid to make plays that is reserved for the top-tier quarterbacks in the league who have been playing 8, 10, 12 years. The stuff that he did near the end at the uh, Tampa Bay game, the fact that it was, what, third and eight, a minute 14 or so left to go in the game, how many quarterbacks in the league right now would be entrusted to throw the football? That run pass option, I don't know, that sprint left where he threw it to Tyreek Hill for eight yards, which clinched the game. How many, how many quarterbacks right now do you think would be entrusted to make that call, to make that play? Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, maybe, possibly, maybe, Deshaun Watson, Ben Roethlisberger, maybe, possibly, maybe, Philip Rivers, depends upon how he's doing in the game. I mean, that's about it, really. If you think about it, I really can't think of anybody else. But Patrick Mahomes is that guy. And the most part is, if you take a look and you take a listen to all the quarterbacks that I just mentioned who would be entrusted to make the, that play at the end of the game, who would you put number one? Maybe you could make an argument for Drew Brees, but <laughs> you would put Patrick Mahomes either two, at the very least number three, if you're just a Patrick Mahomes hater or you're just a Drew Brees or a Tom Brady or maybe a Russell Wilson lover. You could maybe put those guys, arguably, possibly, if you're really stretching, to have those guys more entrusted than Patrick Mahomes, but shit, the high majority of folks who know what the hell they're talking about is like, yeah, Patrick Mahomes, a man in his third year starting in the court as a quarterback in the NFL, his fourth year in the league. It's just unbelievable. But the impact that Mahomes has had on the sport, I guess it's almost like, I guess you could say this is like Sammy Ball back in the early 30s, coming into the league with the Washington football team and introducing the forward pass as a valuable, valuable, uh, valuable option. It was like Jim Brown coming into the league and dominating it. A guy who was like 6'2", 230 pounds, strong, big, muscular, could run, very intelligent, uh, setting the world on fire. The running style of Gale Sayers and the impact that he had in 1965 where no one has seen a talent like this. If you want to compare it to other sports, I guess you could say the impact that Mahomes has had early on in his career is similar to Wilt Chamberlain or Magic Johnson. What, a 6'9 point guard, huh? Larry Bird. What, a 6'9 shooting guard who could shoot like he can? Someone like a Wayne Gretzky. The, the, the way that they changed the sport, Mahomes right now, it's changing the sport. We've never seen arm talent like this anywhere in the NFL. He's almost like Aaron Rodgers 3.0. Forget 2.0, he's 3.0. 
in terms of if you know, we always speak about, well, if Larry Bird was playing basketball in the NBA in the year 2020, he would look like Luka Doncic. That's what uh, the comparison will be. Well, it's almost like if Aaron Rodgers was playing football, but instead of 2020, we almost have to go to 2040, 2050. This would this is what he would look like. He would look like Patrick Mahomes. He said Patrick Mahomes is playing in the year 2020, not 2040. So he's almost jumped a generation in terms of how talented he is as a passer. This season again, he's passed for over 3,000. Speaking of Mahomes, he's passed for over 3,000 yards, 27 touchdowns, two interceptions. And already we're taking what he does for granted. It's, <laughs> it's sick. And it makes it interesting because I'm going to be interested to see exactly where his career takes him. How long are we going to go with this? I mean, what more can he do? I mean, this is going to be a guy. Is he going to be playing the game of football like Magic Johnson played the game of basketball where, you know, no look passes and crazy ass passes? I mean, what are we in store for once Mahomes really completes himself as an NFL quarterback in terms of passing is concerned? And how long can this last in terms of what is he now, 25, somewhere around there? I mean, he could be doing this easily for the next 10, 12, 15 years. And we haven't even seen the best of what Patrick Mahomes is going to be putting down. And what does that mean for the next generation of football players who are going to be wanting to emulate Patrick Mahomes? There's someone right now who's eight years old, who's 10 years old, who's out right now trying to do the things that Patrick Mahomes is doing. There's coaches right now who are coaching high school football, who are coaching peewee football, who are coaching in junior colleges right now, who are looking to see what they can do with someone with an arm talent similar to Patrick Mahomes and what they can do and how much they can stretch the imagination of what they can do on a football field. I mean, this is what Patrick Mahomes is doing for the league. This is what Patrick Mahomes is doing for the sport. I mean, Joe Montana was great. Joe Montana was awesome. Joe Montana was one of the best ever. Put him right there. He didn't have this kind of talent that this kid has. Tom Brady, arguably the greatest football player of all time, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. He didn't have this type of arm talent that Patrick Mahomes has. Jerry Rice, all of these other guys. Mahomes right now is putting himself in a unique position to where if he calls it a career after the 2047 season and he sets all type of passing records, I mean, what... The way the league is going, the way the league is putting an emphasis on passing and what he's already done to start off his career, what are going to be, what's going to be the numbers when Mahomes finally leaves the game? Are we going to be looking at a guy who's going to be passing when everything is all said and done, his career passing yardage is going to be somewhere around 75 to 80,000 passing yards in his career? Are we going to be looking at a guy who's going to be going close to be throwing for 600, 650, 700 touchdowns in his career compared to what 250 300 interceptions that type of ratio are we going to be looking at stats like that are we going to be looking at Wilt Chamberlain type stats are we going to be looking at Babe Ruthian type stats are we going to be looking at Cy Youngian type uh, stats or baseball at the turn of the century where you had Roger Hornsby hitting for 424 in the season where you had, you know, Ty Cobb hitting for X amount of averages or you have Cy Young winning 511 games, Walter Johnson 416 games. When everything is all said and done in Patrick Mahomes' career, are we going to be talking about records that might be, that might not ever be broken depending upon how long this earth is still going to be around? <laughs> 
That's what we're looking at. And I'm not taking that for granted. I'm not just whatevering that. This is something special. Man, in the sports world, we have so many things going on over the past, I would say, 10, 15 years that we've been privileged to. We've had the opportunity to watch the greatest basketball player, one of the greatest basketball players, a generational talent like LeBron James, something we might not see for the rest of our lives. We've seen a tennis god in Roger Federer to go along with Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. We've had arguably probably the greatest female tennis player of all time is Serena Williams doing her thing. And then in the NFL now, we have the greatness of not only Tom Brady doing what he's doing, but now to top that off, to take it up to an even another level of you're talking about the artistry and the beauty and just the all-inspiring talent. We have the arm of Patrick Mahomes mixed along with the intelligence and the brain of that man. How lucky are we to be sports fans right now? Where can you go right now where you can't say this is just something amazing, the time that we're living in over the past 20, 25 years? How lucky have we been as sports fans to witness what, what's been going on? And you have someone like a Patrick Mahomes who's right now, if you're somewhere between the ages of, shoot, I don't know, man, the ages of 13 to 43, come on, man, be cognizant of what's going on. Be there, be there in the moment because in 50 and 60 years, when everything is all said and done in the year 2085, if the earth is still standing, if we're still living as a species, as a human beings, this younger generation, a couple of generations uh, from me right now, who are going to high school, who are just in eighth grade and middle school, who are in college right now, man, you are going to be the caretakers of how great Patrick Mahomes is. Now, unlike a William Mays, unlike a Babe Ruth, unlike a Hank Aaron, unlike a, a, a Jack Johnson, Unlike a Bill Tilden, unlike a Bobby Jones, we don't have too much archive. We don't have too much material. We don't have too much video of these guys. I mean, Babe Ruth, one of the reasons why Babe Ruth is such a myth is because we have so much, so little footage of this guy. Same thing with the great ball players. Same thing with such ball players from the Negro Leagues like Oscar Charleston and Josh Gibson and those guys. Because there isn't any video of what these guys actually did, we can only go by fable. We can only go by myth. We can only go by stories. And when you can strew together a story without the evidence in terms of the actual video of it, then we can, you know, talk about how big that fish exactly was. We can determine the size of the fish that we caught. So Mickey Mantle hitting a ball 500 and something feet, there's no evidence of that. Josh Gibson hitting the Baseball out of uh, Griffith's Field in Washington, D.C. There's no evidence of that. So there's no way to really check. Now, because of video, now because of ESPN, now because of technology, now because of everything, everything is being documented. So for those of the younger generation, and you talk about Patrick Mahomes, just like when we talk about the greatness of a LeBron James, just, because, just like when we talk about the greatness of a Michael Jordan, we could talk about the greatness, and we actually have evidence to back it up. The younger generation who's never seen Michael Jordan play, you can go to YouTube. You can go to certain things, and you can watch full games of Michael Jordan play. You can watch the greatest games of Michael Jordan, so you don't have to rely 
on myth. You don't have to rely on old heads. You don't have to rely on fables. You don't have to rely on that older generation to talk about how great Jordan was. You don't have to visualize it. You don't have to imagine it. You can go to YouTube and see it for yourselves. Unlike Babe Ruth, unlike Jack Johnson, unlike Jack Dempsey, unlike Jesse Owens for the most part. So now with the younger generation, it's going to be up to you, even with the technology getting stronger, even with video now. I mean, you if you wanted to watch every game that Patrick Mahomes has ever ever played, you can kind of you can do that. Just like with LeBron, just like Roger Federer, just like Rafael Nadal, just like Tiger Woods. Just like watching a Jimmy Johnson race. But for the old, for the younger people right now, when I'm, my generation is in, in the grave, wherever we're going to be buried, it's going to be up to you guys to talk about the legendary status of what Patrick Mahomes is doing right now. And yet the video for that younger generation who's going to be born 30, 40 years from now, when they're going to have their champions, when they're going to have their heroes, when they're going to have they're idols to sit there and argue about, man, that guy, man, you all talking about some damn Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes ain't shit, man. John Smith right now, that motherfucker for me, he's the man, he's the idol, he's the goat, he's the greatest, this, that, and the other. You can actually, for these old heads, who are going to be old heads who are right now in their early 20s or in their teens or just beginning their teens, you can sit there and say, nah, young buck, let me tell you something. I saw that man play. You can go ahead and you can check it out on YouTube. You can go ahead and check it out on some video clip. You can go ahead and do that. And you can, um, you know, bow down and get religion to what I'm saying about how great Patrick Mahomes was. Because that man is the man. And he's just getting started. He is just, I'm just, I'm excited. I'm just excited to see exactly how much farther Mahomes is going to develop. And then... The race because he's going to make Deshaun Watson better. He's going to make Trevor Lawrence better. He's going to make Josh Allen better. He's going to make all of these talented guys better. Just like Jordan made his contemporaries better. Just like Roger Federer made his contemporaries better. Just like Magic and Bird made their contemporaries better. Just like um, Floyd Mayweather. Well, not fuck him. But there's so many of the, the greatness. Just like Tom Brady made other quarterbacks stay in the room and study a little bit longer because they knew if Tom Brady's going to be doing that, I better be doing that. Do you know how much better of a quarterback Peyton Manning made Tom Brady and Tom Brady made Peyton Manning because of how great those guys were? Do you realize how great Drew Brees is? It's because of what Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and those guys were putting down. That's going to be the same thing now with this generation of quarterbacks moving in. Patrick Mahomes is going to make Deshaun Watson so much better. Who's going to make Josh Allen so much better? Who's going to make Justin Fields so much better? Who's going to make uh, uh, Russell Wilson, even as he progresses in age, so much better? He's probably the reason why Aaron Rodgers is still at a high level because he's seen what's going down. He's seen the writing on the wall about the greatness of Patrick Mahomes, which allows him to be better, which is very great for Green Bay Packers fans to squeeze a couple of more prime MVP NFL type performances out of Aaron Rodgers. Would he be able to do that if Patrick Mahomes wasn't in the league right now or if his skills were being wasted with a dysfunctional franchise like say Washington or the New York Jets or the Jacksonville Jaguars? Perfect situation, perfect team for Patrick Mahomes. Just like when Magic went to the Lakers, perfect situation. Larry Bird going to the Celtics, perfect situation. 
Willie Mays going to the New York Giants, perfect situation. Joe DiMaggio going to the New York Yankees, perfect situation. All of those things. Everything is so much into play when it comes to those things. So, man, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm excited. Patrick Mahomes is must-see viewing. I mean, it's, it makes me just want to think if you're a baseball fan, just imagine if Mike Trout went to the New York Yankees or Mike Trout went to the Boston Red Sox, one of those type of organizations. Instead of going to the California, the Anaheim Angels, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, just think how much better the sport of baseball would be. And in turn, as great as Mike Trout is, just think how much better Mike Trout would be as a baseball player if he went to a more functional, if he went to a more solid, if he went to a more uh, uh, a more of a traditional winning organization who knows what it takes to win. Patrick Mahomes was in that perfect situation when he went to Kansas City. Everybody talked about going to the Chicago Bears and this, that, and the other. You think Mahomes would be the same type of quarterback? You think Mahomes would have the same type of success? with the Chicago Bears or with the Washington Snyder Skins or with some of these other bad NFL organizations with the Detroit Lions, do you think that Patrick Mahomes would be the Patrick Mahomes that we know now with the Kansas City Le Champions? No, I don't think so. So perfect timing, perfect everything. And I'm taking advantage of it. I'm, in, I'm bringing it all in because what I'm seeing right now is something that is just once in a generation, once in a lifetime. There's been many quarterbacks, there's been many athletes out there that's had great talent, that's had tremendous talent, that could, that had talent that could have been some of the all-time greats. But because of circumstances, because of their own, you know, their own foibles, didn't reach up to it. Injuries, bad habits, bad organization, bad timing, bad injuries, whatever. But as of right now, Man, I'm watching Patrick Mahomes play. And we're talking about a game of football where nothing is promised tomorrow. We're speaking about Patrick Mahomes, or I'm speaking about Patrick Mahomes being great and being off and being wonderful for the next 10, 15 years. That doesn't take into account the game of football itself in terms of, you know, every play could be your last. There's, what happened to Alex Smith? What happened to Joe Theismann? What happened to some of these ball players in terms of these catastrophic injuries? It's, that's out there. Patrick Mahomes is not immune to that. So it can happen at any time. Tom Brady, who's played 20 years, missed an entire season after he uh, injured his knee uh, in the opening game of the season. I think it was against uh, Kansas City also. So, so no one has promised a long, illustrious, injury-free career. In fact, Mahomes missed a couple of games last season because of injury. So... Uh, you know, take every game, take every snap that Patrick Mahomes plays, take it and take care of it, treasure it, you know, just do all those things with it, because, man, if everything goes well, Lord, please, come on, give him the help, give him the strength to uh, do what he needs to do, Patrick Mahomes is a guy who's going to be going down, not just in the annals of football, this guy has the possibility in sports to go down as truly a legendary figure.
And welcome back to the program, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on and discussed. Discussing in the world of sports. Whew, man, it is reaching 1 a.m. I guess you could say now, what is it, a Monday morning or something like that? So I've got about, I don't know, I've got about a quarter of a tank left. I still want to talk about what's happening in the NFL, some a coach getting fired for the Lions and some other things. And of course, I got to talk about my Georgetown Hoyas. One of the reasons why I'm actually starting or started this podcast so late was because I was watching for, I think, the third time in the last 24 hours, the UMBC Georgetown game, 70-62, my Hoyas prevailed. A lot of work to do, a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. But Georgetown basketball is here, first time in eight months. And I'm excited. Their game is, I guess their next game is Tuesday against Davey, who employs a uh, zone. So if I'm thinking about this, I'm really thinking about this. I'm thinking about going to the Santa Fe over here about five miles from my house and putting about $10 on the under. Because the way Georgetown shot against UMBC, and now they're going to be going up against the zone. <laughs> Something tells me that uh, whatever the uh, over-under is, take the under on the game and expect Georgetown to shoot somewhere I guess around what 37 38% from the field probably close to 28 29% from the three point line I'm, I'm hope I'm wrong but uh I'm not going to get too upset if they lose to Navy um this is a transition year for this team so look they ain't going to be making the NCAA tournament highly doubt that they're going to be making the NIT if they make the NIT tournament Patrick Ewing should be coach of the year so I'm just looking for growth. I'm just looking for a lot of excitement. I'm just looking for the team being competitive, uh, competitive, and I'm looking for the team to still be attractive to the strong 2021 recruiting class that we have to make sure that those guys don't decommit. So I'll be talking about my Georgetown Hoyas a little later on in the program, um, a little later on in the podcast. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So... Speaking about some NFL news and some things that I wanted to discuss, some measure of justice has come to former Detroit Lions head coach and former Indianapolis Colts head coach Jim Caldwell. The Lions fired head coach Matt Patricia, along with general manager Bob Quinn after Thanksgiving blowout loss. The Thanksgiving blowout loss to the uh, Texans. The team made the decision just two days after the Lions lost to the, the to the uh, Houston Texans, 41-25 on Thanksgiving. All Lions offensive coordinator Daryl Re- uh, Bevel will be the team's interim head coach, so we'll see how that works. Now, Patricia's record with the Lions was 13-29-1, three and a half, two and a half seasons. Since taking over from the uh, at the Lions coach in 2018, as I mentioned before, he replaced Jim Caldwell, who went 36-28. and 28 with Detroit and made the playoffs two times in four seasons. In fact, should have beaten the uh, Dallas Cowboys in one of those uh, games that they have, but a couple of bogus calls gave the advantage to the Cowboys. But nevertheless, a uh, team like the Lions, who have had such a long history of futility, the fact that Jim Caldwell got them to the playoffs in half the seasons he was the head coach uh, should have, uh, you know, should have warranted a little bit more in terms of the respect that he gave. But look, it was all on Bob Quinn. You go 9-7-8, there's been coaches, black and white, who have been fired for uh, records that were better. So, okay, I don't think Bob Quinn was sitting around saying, oh my goodness gracious, I can't have a black head coach, so let me go ahead and fire him and find myself a white guy. I don't think that was the case at all. But I will say that if you're going to miss 
And if you're going to miss this poorly, it doesn't say that you're a racist, but it does say that you need to be fired. And two and a half years later, with the Patricia uh, Bob Quinn era, that is now over with the consequence of both those guys losing their job. Patricia, who was the uh, New England Patriots defensive coordinator, was brought in to improve the defense. Well, the Lions over the last three seasons were pathetic. In 2018, as far as uh, points are concerned, points allowed, in 2018, 2018, they gave up 22.5 points per game, which was uh, 16th in the league, and then they steadily went down, 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 down. 2019, almost giving, giving up almost 27 points per game, which ranked them 26th in the league. 2020, they were giving up almost 30 points in the league, 30 points a game, which was 30th in the league. Couldn't be done. It was an interesting thing that I was reading about. It was on in Bleacher Report about the relationship that Matt Patricia was having with the players and the fact that he tried to come in and be Bill Belichick. As I mentioned before, he was the defensive coordinator, won a Super Bowl, at the defensive coordinator with that team. And basically, he, he just came in and tried to do the same thing that Bill Belichick had done, being very strict, uh, calling out players, embarrassing players in team meetings and such, calling them out in front of the entire team, running extra laps, working extra hard, doing all the things that Bill Belichick did. And the Lions were like, hey, look, man, you know, uh, we'll... I can understand that Bill Belichick was doing this because Bill Belichick has won Super Bowls. You ain't done jack as a head coach. So your abruptness, your curtness, your lack of empathy, your lack of trying to get to know us and just doing these other things such as, you know, demeaning, insulting, disrespecting and all these other shit and all this other shit that you're doing, that shit don't fly. That shit don't work. So... As the years went along at the coach, and it was only like, they were talking about the first season, how it was such a nightmare, how it was such a relief when the Lions, the season was over and the players were like, get me the fuck out of here. Um, That after that, Patricia did try to be a little bit more hospitable. That Patricia did try to become more of a, uh, you know, understanding guy or more of a guy who was just, who wanted to build relationships with the players, but yet still, I mean, he, he didn't get it done. The players never said that this guy didn't know what he was talking about, and this guy uh, wasn't wasn't brilliant in terms of defense and the hard work that he put in. I mean, this wasn't the guy who was derelict in his duties concerning those matters. It was just a situation where, you know, they were showing a film of um, the team of uh, Carolina, the next uh, team that they were going to be playing, and Patricia was showing uh, Cam Newton uh, doing a touchdown dance or doing something, just basically having fun. And you know, Patricia was up there mocking and, you know, saying, why is this guy doing that? This is ridiculous and this, that, and the other. And the players were like, no, nah, coach, uh, we kind of like that. We, we kind of enjoy that. We kind of wish that we could do that. You know, that that type of thing. So so basically, I mean, shit, if you ain't winning, then at least, at, at least make it, make it palatable for us to come in and continue to fight and scratch and claw for you. I mean, shit, how the hell are we going to do that for you when, you're been, when you've shown so far that you really don't give a shit about us? Kind of like a together-together uh, together type of situation. We'll fight and scratch and claw and believe and lead and all those type of things. We'll bleed and we'll do all that stuff for you if we know that you have our back as far as being human beings and not just commodities. So Patricia, after his first year, finally started getting around to 
realizing that, but by then it was too late. So Pat Patricia was uh, in over his head as a head coach. I'm quite sure that he'll be able to get himself a defensive coordinator job if he wants it, uh, no problem. But, you know, some folks are meant to be head coaches in the NFL and some are meant to be coordinators. So there we go. Bob Quinn, as I mentioned before, the GM since 2016, uh, during the Lions tenure, during his Lions tenure, they were 31-43-1. So where are we going right now for the uh, Detroit Lions? It's a combination of front office executive like Kyle O'Brien, Mike Disner, Rob Lohman, Lance Newmark will handle the general manager's duties for the remainder of the season. And then they're going to report to team president whose name is Rod Wood. Now the owner, I was thinking, you know, Martha Ford was the owner of the Lions. My bad. The owner of the Detroit Lions is now Sheila Ford Hamp. Hamp, H-A-M-P, who is the daughter of... Clay, uh, William Clay Ford and Martha Ford. So, you know, she inherited the team. She said herself and team president Rod Wood are going to have a comprehensive search for general manager and head coaching candidates. There's going to be no decision on what we're going to do in terms of, are we going to bring in the traditional GM head coach structure? Are we going to just try to find a guy who's going to be doing everything? Uh, See Texas, see Houston, Texas. That doesn't work very well. I would go ahead and do the traditional GM, president of football operations type of deal to have him go ahead and hire himself a head coach. Wood also said that we will follow the Rooney rule, not only in spirit, but beyond that, as we search for our candidates. Hamp also said that they will likely inquire with the league for guidance along with other avenues, and they didn't rule out the possibility of hiring a search firm to find themselves the next head coach or the next GM. I'm telling you this right now with the Detroit Lions. There's some jobs in the NFL, and I understand there has been a huge issue going on about the lack of black head coaches in the NFL. And it's a problem. It's a serious problem that needs to be rectified about 15 years ago, but it should be rectified immediately, ASAP. But as a black head coach, as a potential black head coach, especially if you're doing this for the first time, even if you're doing it, getting yourself another run at the position, there's some... Uh, organizations you don't touch because unlike your white counterparts a lot of times the black head coaches or black coaches don't get themselves a second chance coaches who might have failed at one place don't get themselves chances at another and I'm not talking about guys who have gone 3 and 13 2 and 14 and uh, 5 and 11 type of don't get themselves second chances I'm talking about guys who have gone 7 and 9 8 and 8 those type of black head coaches, even them don't get second chances a lot of the times. So for black head coaches, even though there's only 30 positions and these jobs don't come out every single day, for the overall, for their careers, if I'm someone like Eric Bieniemy, if I'm someone like Leslie Frazier, if I'm someone um, like maybe trying to get back into the uh, scene again like a Marvin Lewis, if I'm someone like a Todd Bowles, if I'm someone like George Edwards, the defensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings, who should be um, thinking about, should be a candidate for some of these jobs if, if they want them. Down the line, if I'm thinking about someone like a um, Byron Leftwich, if looks like the writing is on the wall where Anthony Lynn, who's now the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers, I mean, after the other, after the recent debacle with the Buffalo Bills, another, you know, game management clock management type of uh, kerfuffle that happened. 
he'll be looking for a job. If I'm these guys, I'm staying away from the Detroit Lions. I just am. They've gone 26 years without a division title. The last time they won a title was in 1993. They haven't won a playoff game since 1991. Two of of their greatest players who've ever played in that organization outside of Bobby Lane, um, Calvin Johnson, and Barry Sanders decided to retire early rather than continue to play for an organization like that. If I'm, again, Eric Bieniemy, who should have his choice of jobs that he wants to go to, Todd Bowles, Leslie Frazier, the defensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills, Todd Bowles is the defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, despite the poor game plan that he put together against the Kansas City Champions on Sunday. He should be a guy who should have considerations to be an NFL head coach. Marvin Lewis, again, I think he's working with uh, Herm Edwards down in Arizona, down at Arizona State. If he wants to get himself back into uh, NFL head coaching, I know that he uh, went after the uh, Dallas Cowboys job uh, this last offseason. If he wants to go ahead and uh, dip his toe back into seeing if there's going to be other teams that will give him an opportunity. You have Anthony Lynn again, George Edwards. These guys stay away. Stay away from the Detroit Lions. Because Eric B. Enemy, Tom, especially if you're Todd Bowles and Eric, uh, Leslie Frazier, as I mentioned before, Todd Bowles had the New York Jets job. Leslie Frazier, I think he had the Minnesota Vikings job. I don't know if that was on an interim basis, but some of these guys who's already had one opportunity to, to become a head coach stay far away from the Detroit Lions because that's a organization where, you know what? They're not built for success. Matthew Stafford, quarterback, I believe what is in his 10th, 11th year. So we don't know what we're going to do about that. So there's other jobs out there that are available that could be more attractive. If you're Atlanta and Houston are already looking for jobs, even though, you know, Raheem Morris, what he's doing down in Atlanta, I know no one's paying attention to him, but Raheem Morris is doing a hell of a job with the uh, Atlanta Falcons, and he should be a serious consideration from owner Arthur Blank to be the next head coach of that or, of that organization. So you've got the New York Jets, you got the Jacksonville Jaguars, you got the Denver Broncos, you have possibly the Chicago Bears. All of these jobs could be available. Well, the Texans and the Falcons job, we know they're going to be available, but you know I don't see how Adam Gase uh, survives being the head coach of the New York Jets. I don't really see how Doug Barone becomes continues to become the uh, head coach of uh, Jacksonville. I don't know, Vic Fangio, what's going in now, his second year? I mean, there's a situation if they bottom out and play similar to how they played against New Orleans, despite the fact that, yeah, I know they didn't have a quarterback, but still, man, that was still a pretty uh, pathetic performance going up against the Saints and Taysom Taysom Hill. So that could be a situation, as I mentioned before, Anthony Lynn with the Los Angeles Chargers. I mean, that's a situation where they'll be looking for a head coach in all probability. Uh, If the Philadelphia Eagles continue to falter, I don't see how Doug Peterson continues to keep his job. And as I mentioned before, whether it be in New England or maybe it be in some other places where there's always going to be a surprise head coaching position becoming open. So if I'm Biennemi, if I'm Bowles, if I'm Frazier, if I'm Lynn, if I'm Edwards, those are the type of situations I look at before I consider the Detroit Lions. You take a look at Houston. I mean, yeah, Bill O'Brien Bill O'Brien sent them back years with some of the moves that he's made, but man, how would you love the wouldn't you love to work with someone like a Deshaun Watson? Same thing with say the New York Jets. Yeah, they're dysfunctional. Yeah, they're a joke. Yeah, they're a clown show, but damn, 
You'll have the opportunity to work with Trevor Lawrence as your coach, a guy who is also projected to be a generational talent. You have someone like the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, another situation where it's kind of like, damn, you have the opportunity to maybe go ahead and to uh, work with Justin Fields. Denver, who knows, the Chargers. If you have the opportunity to work with a Justin Herbert, how can you not take advantage of that situation? If you're someone like a enemy, if you're someone of a uh, mindset who's an offensive coordinator, who's an offensive mind, how would you not love the opportunity to work with someone like that? So, look, if I'm black, if I'm a head coach, if I'm viable, I'm staying away from the Detroit Lions. Maybe the Lions should go after someone like a Jim Harbaugh, if or when he leaves Michigan. I mean... Harbaugh had a, what, a 49-22 and one, one regular season record when he was the head coach for San Francisco. Had a 5-3 and three postseason, led the 49ers to the Super Bowl. You know, made Colin Kaepernick a, a really, really good NFL quarterback. So, who knows, man? Who knows? You take a look at a team like Detroit, maybe they meet, need someone like a Jim Harbaugh, a guy who can turn the squad around. But you got to remember, Sam, the, the, the dumpster fire that San Francisco was in before he came in 2011. The, the 49ers were a below 500 squad for eight years before he came. Hardball comes into town, resurrects the career, saves the career of Alex Smith, gets them to 13-3, builds a strong defense, and has them in the NFC Championship game where they lost to the uh, New York Giants with uh, Eli Manning. And then the following year, they were in the Super Bowl. Now, after maybe four or five years, Jim Harbaugh is going to drive everybody nuts Jim Harbaugh is going to drive everybody insane because Jim Harbaugh is going to be Jim Harbaugh. But as of right now, you can promise if you're a Detroit Lions football fan, and you're going to say that Jim Harbaugh is going to do the same, is going to have the same type of success in Detroit that he would have in San Francisco. And Harbaugh wouldn't be working with someone like an Alex Smith. He wouldn't be working with someone like a Colin Kaepernick. He's going to be working with someone like Matthew Stafford, who I still think is a guy who can be somewhere amongst the 11 to 15 best quarterbacks in the league on any given Sunday. If Harbaugh is looking to jump board, jump ship, Michigan losing again to Penn State. If Harbaugh is looking to move on and go somewhere else, stay in the Midwest, not even leave the state, think the um, relationship could be had. The marriage could be made available to the Detroit Lions and in the, in the, in, uh, Jim Harbaugh. So, Stick with that, go in that direction. But with the Lions, <laughs> if I'm a blackhead coach, nah, man, I'll pass. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, a lot of things going down in the world of sports, shalom, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, bonjour, bonsoir, que pasa mi amigos, you know, one of the reasons why I keep saying those things 
is it's just part of my deal to try to keep my memory going. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Comment allez-vous? Très bien, merci et vous-même. Uh, shalom, konnichiwa, and wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. All of those things. I just do it mainly for, um, just to keep my memory going, flowing, and that type of thing. Do my lumosity. I'm at 265 straight days. Let's put it this way. Ever since the pandemic hit, and we first were shut down, the world first shut down, and and all of those type of things. I started Lubosity, or I started doing it on an everyday basis. 264 days later, I'm still up there doing it. 264 days in a row. So I do certain things to try to keep my memory sharp, to try to keep my... Your brain is a muscle. So just like any other muscle, if you don't exercise it, it becomes weak, it becomes flabby, it becomes useless. And there's a history of dementia in my family. So I've said to myself, you know what? If I'm going to be 70, 75, 80, 85 years old and not remembering what I did two minutes ago and not remembering who I am, if I'm going to reach that point, I want to go out fighting. I'm going to try to see what I can do to uh, exercise every avenue, go down every avenue, open up every door I can to uh, try to keep myself mentally sharp. So, you know, that's what I try to do. Brain games, everything like that. So... Whenever I start doing the wassalam alaikum and shalom and konnichiwa and bonjour, bonsoir and kpasa and everything like that, sometimes it's like bonjour, uh, bonjour, kpasa. Uh, what else did I say? Have I said konnichiwa yet? Uh, wassalam alaikum. Which, who am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? Which thing am I forgetting? So I do that just to keep my brain sharp for people who are always asking me, hey man, in those podcasts, why are you doing all that wassalam alaikum shit? What's up with that? Plus, I have people listening to this podcast all over the world. So if you're listening to this podcast in Paleri, I'm quite sure it would be nice for me, my appreciation, when I say bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, comment allez-vous, très bien, merci et vous-même. I wouldn't, you know, que pasa, mi amigos. We have people listening in South America and other Spanish-speaking countries who can understand que pasa, mi amigos, chica, senor, senorita. You know, me, I'm away, Wendell Wallace. You know, just my way of saying thank you very much. I don't speak the language. I have a, you know, I can't, I can't speak foreign languages, man. For me, English is a foreign language. Um, but yeah, you know, I've tried. I remember, man, my mom, my mom was a French teacher and I still can't speak French. How pathetic am I? I failed. I took Spanish three times, two of them in college, two of the times I tried. I mean, I tried hard and I failed. I didn't even finish the course. The last time I tried speaking Spanish, I got halfway through. And I remember spending nights, three, four, five hours a night, going over ber- verbs, going over, you know, the miamos and all that kind of stuff and going over the vocabulary words. Just couldn't get that shit. The test would come and I would sit there and my brain would fucking freeze. I just remember in college taking a test about 20 minutes in. Just, here you go, putting my name on it. Answered like four of the 52 questions, turned in the paper. I said, look, man, I ain't going to be wasting my time. I'm going to flunk. I don't understand this. I don't get this. I tried as hard as I could. I spent four hours last night going over this stuff, trying, trying, trying. I get to the test today. I don't understand 
any of these things. Verbs, I have no idea. The vocabulary, I have no idea. Here's my paper. See you later. I'm going down to the commons and trying to talk to the females, but I'm done. I'm through. So I think instead they had me take nutrition. It was something where I I, I got a someone signed saying that, you know, I have a mental deficiency in terms of uh, studying or learning foreign language. So instead they um, had me take bio, they had me take nutrition or was that with biology? I don't know, but that was my college career in a nutshell. So yeah, man. Wassalamu alaikum. Que pasa, mi amigos. Mi llamo y Wendell Wallace. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. See, I already forgot which of the other ones I... Que pasa? Que pasa? Konishiwa. Que pasa? Hold on. Que Que pasa? Konishiwa. Que pasa? Wassalamu alaikum. That's right. Okay, back to sports. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, college basketball started on Wednesday. Um, you know what? There's been some upsets. Kentucky lost. Virginia lost. Um, Michigan had to go to overtime to beat Oakland. No, I'm not talking about the Raiders. No, I'm not talking about the uh, other uh, Oakland A's. I'm talking about the Oakland University of Oakland, Oakland College, whatever, right there in the state of Michigan. So there's been some. Uh, there's been some upsets. Uh, as I mentioned before, Virginia losing to San Francisco in overtime on a late 8-0 run. San Francisco, no, Bill Russell wasn't walking through that door. Quentin Daly wasn't walking through that door. Casey Jones wasn't walking through that door. And if they did, they certainly wouldn't be playing basketball. They certainly certainly wouldn't have a chance against the young Virginia Cavaliers, who Ralph Sampson's not walking through that door. Jeff Holland isn't coaching that team. And um, Rick Carlisle is not walking through that door. So San Francisco hit 13 of their 28 three-point attempts, holding Virginia to 3 of 12 from behind the arc. The Cavaliers had just five assists on 21 baskets. Tony Bennett, who's an excellent coach. I'm not too bent out of shape. I'm not too worried about that. Neither should you be. I'm not bent out of shape or worried about it because Virginia's not my team. But if you're a team that uh, is a fan of, uh, if you're a fan of the Virginia Cavaliers, then everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, number one, Gonzaga, looked like the number one team in the country, saw bits and pieces of that 102-90 beatdown of number six, Kansas, where they had three players score over 20 points. Um, yeah, Gonzaga looked great, man. <laughs> Gonzaga looks really good. Kansas is going to take some time. David McCormick, huh? That's a guy who I saw play at the AAU tournament a couple of years ago. Looks like he's lost some weight and put on some muscle and has a nice physique for him to play basketball for that inside. Bill Self is an inside-out coach, uh, despite the three-point shot and how prevalent the three-point uh, shot is in today's game. Uh, Self is still a back-to-the-basket, throw-it-in, kick-it-out type of coach. It was the same way when he was coaching Tulsa and then Illinois and now Kansas. So, you know. Kansas is going to be fine. As long as Bill Self is coaching, he'll, they'll be fine. But uh, even some of these teams that lost, and Jacob Mosley on his Twitter account said it perfectly. Hey, you know what? The fact that there's nobody in the stands or very few folks in the stands, there's basically no home court advantage now. For a little bit, that's going to take some time for these teams to adjust. I mean, when you go to Lawrence, Kansas and play, the crowd is a definite factor. When you go to Lexington, and play in Rupp Arena, that is definitely a factor. When you go to the kennel in Gonzaga in Spokane, Washington, to watch them play, that is definitely an advantage. Now, it doesn't you know, mean too much because a lot of these teams are playing at neutral sites, but still, some of these teams that are lost, Kentucky lost at home and others, that plays a role. And for some of these teams, it's going to take some time. For the first time in their lives, they're playing in front of an empty arena. 
So if you're a player from Kentucky, you're a five-star recruit. I mean, for the most part, you've always played in gyms that have been packed. You've always played in gyms where there's at least a decent amount of people there. Now you're playing basically in what amounts to almost like a pickup game in the summer as far as the attendance is concerned, which is none. So going to get have to get used to that. Going to have to get used to that. But the good coaches will be able to do that. And when you're speaking about teams who have already lost or teams who have had some trouble or teams having some difficulty, Villanova. Uh, lost, lost to Virginia Tech in uh, Boston College, gave them a good game. These these teams, when everything is going to be all said and done, will be fine. And you also have to think about throwing to the equation how many of these games are going to be uh, completed. How many of these teams are going to be able to complete? I don't know, ninety, eighty, seventy percent of their games due to the uh, pandemic. So all of those things are going to be thrown into the mix. Their routines for a lot of these teams are going to be different than they've been first time in their lives playing basketball. That the normal for them playing basketball is not going to be happening. So we'll see. Not just as not just playing basketball, but also student athletes. They're every day. It takes an adjustment for some of these for some of these guys, eighteen to twenty two years old. Shit, it's taking an adjustment for the rest of the entire world, regardless of your age, to you know, go about your life and set a new routine and do stuff that you haven't done for some folks in decades. So what do you expect out of a 18-year-old who's making that transition from high school to college, especially when their high school year, the year before, was thrown so out of whack because of what happened? Now they're going to a new adventure. Now they're going on a new journey. Now there's they, as they learn, as they grow, they leave, they've left the nest and now they're going to a situation where there's new responsibilities, where there's other things being placed on them. And you have this pandemic thrown upon them and the expectations of playing basketball and being in, being responsible for grown men's salary and their livelihood and their children and their wives and, and everything like that. It's a, it's a big adjustment for all these guys, for all these players. So, you know, what happened, happened in terms of some of the ranked teams faltering, not living up to early season expectations. But as November turns to December, which turns to January, I'm quite sure that the teams with the great coaches like the Jay Wrights and such, the uh, Mark Fuse who look great. They don't need any type of adjustment. They blew out Auburn. They, they've looked fantastic. But, you know, Bill Self, I'm quite sure that, you know, being the coach that he is, he'll have his team ready to go. Jay Wright, we've seen how great he is as a college basketball coach. He'll have his team ready to go. Jawan Howard, I think, will be able to bounce back with Michigan, and they'll play a lot better. So those type of uh, programs I'm not too worried about. Again, I'm not a fan of any of those programs, so that's another reason why I'm not worried about it. But if you are a fan of those programs and you see the team sputtering, you've seen these early losses, don't worry about it, man. Those teams will be fine. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. How about this news? McCor McCor is going to be out indefinitely for Howard University because of a groin injury. Now, who the fuck is McCor McCor? Glad you asked. McCor was a five-star recruit. In fact, he was a top 15 recruit, number 16 in the ESPN uh, ranking class. So that would make him a top 16 recruit. He was the guy who committed to Howard University and became the highest ranked college basketball prospect to, to uh, commit to a HBCU since the ESPN recruiting database started in 2007, and I'm not quite sure he was the highest-rated recruit ever to go to a HBCU school, and 
everybody started the discussion about, well, you know, with everything that's going down here in the country, and this was during the whole George Floyd situation, and, um, and you know, everybody having a come-to-Jesus moment and turn to black folks, and we connecting with their roots and the historical presence and everything like that, so... You know, if it was if the, the discussion was McCora going to be that guy to start a trend to where these five star top ten top twenty recruits all of a sudden now are going to spurn the likes of a Duke and a North Carolina and a Kentucky and a Kansas and start heading over to uh, Florida A and M and North Carolina A and T and Howard University and Tuskegee and Prairie View and Maryland Eastern Shore and Coppin State and and um, all those type of schools. Well, important. It's important for this year because I'm quite sure I believe Mikey Williams was a guy who's a five star recruit. I don't think he's in the twenty twenty one recruiting class, but I know He's a highly recruited player, might be 2022. He was making noise when McCour made the decision to go to Howard University that he might follow in his footsteps. And that again brought up the discussion. Is this going to be a trend or is this going to be a one-time thing? So this is an important season, not just for McCour McCour, who I'm quite sure is the guy who's thinking I'm only going to be one and done since I'm a five-star um, top 20 recruit and also my brother Thonmaker, is playing basketball right now, and he didn't even go to uh, he didn't even go to college. He went straight from um, high school to the NBA. I think he was like 19 at the time, so he circumvented the you have to be you have to you know stay out of high school one year or something like that before you're eligible to be drafted in the NBA. So McCore, I believe, was one of these guys where I'm just going to go to Howard. I'm going to light the world on fire. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to be on campus with the most beautiful females on the planet in terms of uh, college campuses concerned. And I'm going to uh, have some fun, score a lot of points, put my name out there and become a lottery pick after averaging like 27 points and 17 rebounds and five assists for Howard University. Well, has it started off that way for uh, McCor? He's averaging 11 and a half points, six rebounds per game and 19 minutes per game as the Howard Bisons are 0-3. They lost to Belmont, 95-78. They lost to George Mason. George Mason, who does he coach? They lost to George Mason, 84-70. And here's the one where it's kind of like, oh boy, that's not good. Kenny Blakeney, the head coach, not good. Not good, not good, not good. Howard lost to Queens University, 85-71. You might be asking yourself, Queens University, who the fuck? Where the fuck is Queens University? It's the school in North Carolina. That's Division Two. Division Two. Yikes. That's not good. I'm rooting for um, McCor. I really am. Because I would love to see. I mean, I would love to see all. Every time I watch a great college basketball player, I always say, why didn't he go to Georgetown? But I would love to see the MEAC elevate his talent. I would love to see the SWAC elevate his talent. I would love to see that conference elevate. Look, now, are they going to be rivaling the ACC and the Big Ten and the Big East? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm asking from the MEAC. Is the, is the SWAC all of a sudden going to be a rival for five-star recruits from uh, the, the Big 12? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm, that's what I'm not asking. But, you know, you don't need a, not every school can be Duke or Kentucky in terms of the five stars that are going there. 
the recruiting classes that are going there. But you know what? You can be a really successful program. You can be a really good program. And if you're a MEAC or a school for the SWAC, when I say that you could be a really good program, like in a 10-year period, you should be able to hopefully, dreamingly, that the schools from the MEAC, every 10 years, they might be able to make a Sweet 16. If you take a look at the program that the University of Houston has, or back in the day, the, the um, program that Gonzaga had, not, not Gonzaga now, who are one of the elites of the elites in college basketball, but I'm talking about when they were that, you know, little small engine that could type of deal, were, you know, making it to the Sweet 16 or making it to the NCAA tournament was uh, considered a really good year. I mean, really make it to the NCAA tournament, not make it because they actually won their tournament, but because they were actually one of the top 64 teams in the uh, in college basketball that season. There shouldn't be a reason why. This is what I was hoping. There shouldn't be a reason why three or four out of every 10 years that a school from the MEAC or the SWAC, the historically black colleges and universities from those uh, conferences, there's no reason why every three to four years that one of those schools can't be one of the best 64 teams in the nation. Notice I didn't say vying for a championship. Notice I didn't say making the final four. Didn't say anything like that. But if you take a look, I don't, there's no, there shouldn't be, uh, and I understand money plays an issue and everything like that, but in terms of basketball is concerned, my hope, my dream for the MEAC and for the SWAC conferences, the historically black uh, university and colleges, the historically uh, black college and universities, whatever comes first, is the fact that those guys should be on the same level as the Patriot League. Or those, that those schools or those conferences should be hopefully competing on the same level as some of the mid-tier conferences. That's what I was hoping what McCord McCord could do. To where, look, five-star recruits are still going to go to Kentucky. They're still going to go to Duke. They're still going to be going to Gonzaga. They're still going to be going to UCLA, Kansas. They're still going to be going to those programs. Michigan, Michigan State. They're still going to be going to those programs. But I was hoping that possibly the North Carolina A&Ts and the uh, Delaware States, and the Prairie Views, and the Florida A&Ms. I, I, I was just hoping that because of McCor McCor, all of a sudden that maybe, possibly, a three-star, a couple of three-star recruits will go to a Howard. A couple of uh, three-star recruits will go to a Morgan State. Maybe a four-star might go to a school in the MEAC. Maybe if something doesn't work out with a five-star who's not getting enough playing time at Kentucky or not getting enough playing time at Duke or not getting enough playing time at Florida State or not getting enough playing time over at uh, Auburn, they then might transfer. Instead of going to another you know, school in the Power 5, Power 6 conferences, maybe then they would go ahead and uh, go to a historically black college or university. You know, that's how Steve Fisher, when he was with San Diego State, that's how he built his program to where, look, he wasn't getting the five-star recruits because those schools or those kids weren't going to San Diego State. If they were going to be staying on the West Coast, they would be either going to Gonzaga, they would either be going to uh, UCLA or, or, or another type of school or Washington, something like that. They weren't going to San Diego State. They weren't going to be playing for a school in the Mountain West. So guess what Steve Fisher said and did? All right, you know what? I'm going to establish a relationship with you guys anyway. 
because there could be a possibility where you might not be happy when you go to a Washington. There might not you might not be happy if you go to you know a highly ranked top five, top ten schools where they bring in top five recruits every single year. So if you're looking to transfer, if you're looking to go somewhere else, I've already built that relationship with you. And they'll make it easier. It'll give me a chance to sell you on, you know what? Instead of going to another five-power school, why don't you come back home? Why don't you come back to the area? Why don't you come back to the region? Why don't you play for me? You'll start. You'll play. You'll get 35 minutes a game. You'll get an opportunity to shine. And you'll be able to uh, work your way to the NBA that way. Steve Fisher built his program based on transfers from Syracuse and UCLA and all those type of schools. Hopefully, these coaches in the MEAC are doing the same thing in terms of, hey, look, man, all right, you know, you're being recruited by Duke and Kentucky and all them type of places. That's fine. That's cool. You go ahead and you do that. But I want you to know right now that, damn, you know what, if you ever get to the point where you're looking to move on or if you're looking to uh, restart your career because it's not turning out the way you thought it would be, I want to let you know that I've got your back. That I love you, man, and I'm gonna take care of you if you come to my if you come down to a Morgan State, if you come to a Maryland Eastern Shore, if you go to a Coppin State, if you go to a Prairie View, if you go to uh one of them schools. Because we do qualify, you know, our conferences do qualify to get into the NCAA tournament. You know that, right? We might be in the play-in game, and then after that, we might play the number two team in the country. But we do have the opportunity to get into uh, NCAA tournament game. So if you go to one of our schools, it's not like you are throwing away your opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament. In fact, you are probably increasing the ability to play in the NCAA tournament if you go to one of our schools and play in the MEAC and play for one of the best teams in the MEAC or Virginia State or Virginia Union and such. You'll have the opportunity to get into the tournament. Uh, your chance will be better if, say, you, instead of transferring to a Mississippi State or an Oregon State or uh, a Boston College or a Clemson or somewhere like that to where, yeah, great, you're playing against North Carolina. Great, you're playing against Duke two times a year. You transfer to Mississippi State. Yeah, great, you're playing against Auburn twice a year. Great, you're playing against Calipari and Kentucky twice a year. Great, fantastic. But what does that mean? You'll get drubbed by 35 and you'll be sitting at home either playing in the NIT or not playing basketball at all. At least if you go to a school that will take care of you, at least if you go to a school and be in a position where you have people who actually look like you, who are from the same background as you, who are facing the same everyday oppression and disrespect that you do, and you have people of adults and of the age group that can teach you how to overcome that type of bullshit that the world throws on you on an everyday basis. And you can actually see people who look like you, who come from the same neighborhoods as you, who come from the same environment as you, who have walked in the same shoes as you've done, actually being able to succeed, actually being intelligent, actually doing something other than playing sports, rapping, hanging out on the corner or anything like that. Seeing beautiful, beautiful, beautiful black women, black women, the most beautiful creatures on the face of the earth who are smart, who are intelligent, who are strong, who are dignified. 
I mean, you get that when you go to these campuses, when you go to Howard University, when you go to these uh, historically black colleges or universities. Those are the type of people that you're going to be running into. I love Georgetown University. Love, love, love Georgetown University. One of my dreams, one of my biggest dreams in life was to play for John Thompson at Georgetown University. But if I was going to be playing college, if I was going to be playing basketball at Georgetown University, I wouldn't be around people who look like me. I wouldn't be around people with the same background as me. I wouldn't be around the same group of people who go through the same experiences that I do. Because Georgetown ain't too, ain't too many brothers and sisters walking around that campus. I would have to go down to Howard University to have some fun. If I wanted to go to a party, go to one of the inner caucuses, if I wanted to go to an NAACP event, I would have to go around the black area of Washington, D.C., Howard University, Georgia Avenue, uh, uh, Northwest Washington, that area. That's what I would have to go to. If I wanted to have some fun, if I wanted to feel more at home, I would have to go over to have to go over to um Howard University for that. So basically what I'm saying is Wendell, what are you saying? What I'm saying is that it's extremely important for McCor McCor to uh he's gonna be out indefinitely, so I don't know how many games he's gonna be out. And with Howard University, you don't know how many games he's gonna play, but McCor McCor is up on it, it, it it's up, incumbent upon him and Kenny Blakeney, the coach, to get him out there and to have him put up some numbers and uh, do some great work and get him ready and, you know, have him be, you know, one of these players that's going to get Howard University, of course, they're 0-3, losing to a Division two school. <sighs> but, it, you know, it's very important that McCor has himself a fine year because if he doesn't, what is that, what, what message does that send to other five-star, four-star, three-star, impact, really good recruits who are looking to make their name in college basketball. Well, why would I go to a uh, historically black college or university? You saw what McCord McCord did. That man was a five-star recruit, and you see the year that he had over at an HBCU. No, nah, that's okay. I'll pass. I'll go to a, um, I'll go to a Stony Brook. I'll go to a Boston College. I'll go to a Mississippi State. I'll go to a San Diego State. I'll go to a New Mexico State. I'll go to a Cal State Northridge. I'll go to a Minnesota. I'll, I'll go to one of those schools, you know. But HBCU, nah, I see how they did with uh, McCord. McCord, five-star, I'll pass. So very, very important for those guys, for that program, and for McCord to make this work. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, let's get to my Georgetown Hoyas. Let's get to my Georgetown Hoyas. Fuck I'm talking about. Let's go, baby. Won their home opener against UMBC. 70-62. to I don't know, man. The way I look at this game, my attitude regarding this season, look, building blocks, foundation for the NCAA tournament team for the 2022-23 season. Let's get started to build some foundation, build some habits, get ready for a possible postseason run. And I'm speaking about both NIT and NCAA tournament for the 2021-2022 season. That's what I'm. That should be the plan. This is all about growing pains. This is all about developing players. 2021-22 is all about we've got some recruits coming in, some really good recruits. Let's start working our way toward the NCAA uh, NIT tournament. 
um, get into there, win a game or two, and then build the momentum to get into the tournament for 2022-2023. It's not an overnight deal. This is going to take some time. So that's my mindset. So this year, wins and losses really don't mean too much to me. I mean, do I want to win all their games? Of course. But am I realistic? Of course. I know that we're going to get we're going to get destroyed by Villanova. I know we're going to lose big to West Virginia. I know that um, Connecticut's going to put a hurting on us. But it's all about developing that young talent. It's all about getting those guys, getting their feet wet and seeing what they can do, taking their bumps and their bruises and learning from them and getting better from them. So that's what the 2020-2021 season is, especially when there's no guarantee exactly how many games Georgetown will play this year. So, you know, if they stop after 18 games, if they're, you know, if they're after 18 games, if they're 6-12, and 12, what, what's, the, what's the big fucking thing? So there's the, but the game itself, UMBC, Georgetown, one of them games where you have to be a fan of either school, of either team. I mean, a really big fan to watch that game. I get it. Both teams combined to miss nine of his first 12 shots, picked up seven turnovers in the first seven minutes. Georgetown led by as many as 11, 34, 23, with about 4.11 to go before halftime. Then UMBC closed to a 34-30 uh, disadvantage heading into the final two minutes of play. It was good to see Malcolm Wilson, who uh, looks like he's about a buck 25, seven feet tall, but... You know, he played well, got a couple of uh, offensive rebounds, put back a late a late dunk to uh, close the score at 36-30 at halftime. It was good to see him play him, Timothy Ego Hefe, who, whew, boy, I'll get to him a little bit later. So you're taking a look, 36-30, Georgetown leading by six at halftime. You know, Georgetown shot 40%, five of 16 from the three-point line. They missed four of their five free throws. But UMBC returned the favor by shooting only 32% from the floor. There are three of 12 from the three-point line. Both teams combined for 17 turnovers. So, yes, you had to be a huge fan of either team to watch this game. I am not blaming. I am not mad. I am not confused. I am not going to discuss why you wouldn't watch the Georgetown Hoyas play against UMBC. It takes a certain amount of love for either team to have watched this game. So, I get it. I understand it. But, as you know... I do love me, love me, love me some Georgetown Hoyas. So going into the second half, hey, look, you know what? I was feeling pretty good. Georgetown led 58-44 at the 10-minute mark. I was saying, okay, let me see Jabari Sibley. Let me see TJ Berger. Let me see some other guys and see what they've got, you know, in about four or five minutes when Georgetown moves this lead to 20-plus. But G-Town couldn't put it away. Why? Because they missed 13 consecutive shots over the following six minutes. Some of them were wide open. Some of them were pretty good. Some of them were Oeve. But there were enough good looks for those guys not to have missed 13 consecutive shots. Luckily, we were playing UMBC, who scored just five points over the same period. So, with three field goals over the last, what, nine and a half minutes to go, Georgetown finished the game shooting 37% from the field. 25% from the three-point range. The four uh, Georgetown starters posted double figures. I mean, Javon Blair had 23 points. Corsi took 23 shots to get there. Don, uh, Don Carey had 13 points. 11 of, them, 11 of them came in the first half, and really about 9 or 11 of them came in about a two- to three-minute stretch. Other than that, nothing. Judas Wahab 
had a double-double, 12 points, 12 rebounds, but he was in foul trouble. And Jamarco Pickett had 10 points, but he was 3 for 15 shooting and had 5 turnovers, along with Javon Blair, who I think had 4 or 5 turnovers also. So as the starting 5, Georgetown shot 35% from the field, 7 of 25 from the 3-point line against UMBC. I mean, hell, that performance, we can't even beat DePaul with that type of performance. Five of the eight scholarship newcomers saw action in the game. I thought Dante Harris played well. I thought Colin Holloway was a nice little surprise. I thought Kobe Clark was great with 10 rebounds. Um, surprised that Jabari Sibley didn't play. Coach's decision. We'll see about that. TJ Berger, the shooter. I don't know. They might have to use him against uh, Navy. If he's not going to be in the game against Navy, who employs a 2-3 zone in Berger, by all accounts, was recruited for the shooting. So if we're not going to see T.J. Berger get any minutes, any meaningful minutes against Navy, that probably means that T.J. Berger is going to be uh, sitting there with the walk-ons in terms of the opportunity to play. So, you know, Jalen Harris, the grad transfer from Arkansas, he went 0 for 6 from the field, missed a couple of good looks. Dante Harris, again, Colin Holloway, saw spot action. They combined for five points. Uh, Kobe Clark, 10 rebounds in his debut. I love his energy. I love his hustle. I love his uh, work ethic when he was on the court. I love his intensity. Also, enjoyed the fact on the shots when they had on the bench when Georgetown made a good play, despite the fact that he wasn't playing. It was good to see Jabari Sibley be active, be cheering, be clapping. Uh, when there was a timeout that he would be one of the guys right there to be, you know, slapping five and giving encouragement to the guy. So he wasn't pouting. He wasn't uh, making a mean face. So moving forward, that's a good deal. I'm always, whenever, whenever those young guys come in for our team, man, I always want to see it's a little bit different this year because of the fact they're not playing at the cap one center. And because, you know, you don't get a lot of shots of the bench, but I always like to see the freshmen, the first couple of games of the season when Georgetown plays. I like to see what their attitude is in terms of are they clapping? Are they engaged when there's a timeout? Are they enthusiastically getting off the bench and going over to greet the teammates and all those type of teams, all those type of things? Are they being good teammates? By all accounts, um, Dante Harris, uh, Holloway, and Jabari Simply were doing just that. Really didn't get a chance to see T.J. Berger, but I was glad to see those guys uh, being enthusiastic uh, towards that. So two prominent players did not see action against UMBC. As I mentioned before, Jabari Sibley, grad transfer Chudier Bowell. Post-game comments, Ewing cited the coach's decision not to play Sibley, and Bile had an injury, so he couldn't play. Of course, Ewing wasn't going to tell us exactly who uh, what happened to Bile. So they play Navy tomorrow, hopefully. Crossing my fingers. I was just like, man, I was like every single day, man. It seemed like like every couple of hours. I would just be like, before the UMBC game, I was like, please, Jesus, just let them play this game. Whatever happens moving forward, I will, I'll accept. Uh, but I really want to see these guys play. I mean, just for me, I want to see what this team looks like. So it's the same thing, man. We've got another 24 hours or another, what, 36 hours, whatever, before the uh, Navy game is supposed to go on. Please, Navy, be smart. Please don't get any, don't get yourself any type of positive tests. I want to see what Georgetown looks like moving forward now, going against the zone now, going against the team in Navy that finished under 500 last season, but returned about 80% of their scoring. I think they returned four 
of their five starters and eight of their ten uh, rotation type players. So this is going to be a team that doesn't have to get to know each other. It's not going to have to get to know the coach. Not going to have to get to know the plays. This is going to be a situation where you're going to be facing experienced player who, uh, players who are going to be playing zone defense. And if I'm a team in the Big East this season, the way Georgetown showed as far as the shooting acumen is concerned, I'm going to be going zone, zone, zone. I mean, Phil- I mean, you know, Villanova and Connecticut and those guys and Creighton, those guys, I mean, they would probably be able to beat Georgetown going four on five. But still, if I'm one of these uh, teams in the Big East and I'm scaling Georgetown, I go zone, 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 and let those guys throw up bricks all game long. So it'll see what type of uh, performance, as far as shooting-wise is concerned, Georgetown has against this zone defense. Jalen Harris, again, starting point guard, not known for his outside shooting. He's going to have to make some shots. Don Cherry, who made a couple of, I think he made like 38% of his three-pointers last year when he played for uh, Siena. He's going to have to be that guy. I think moving forward, Blair, Cherry, Pickett, and Wahab. Those are going to have to be the guys. The senior leadership is going to come from Javon and Jamarco. But just in terms of if they, if, if Georgetown really wants to be competitive against team of their same ilk, namely the Big East uh, conference teams and then playing Syracuse January 9th, I think the two key guys other than um, Blair and Pickett are going to be Don Carey and Cutis Wahab. Wahab has to stay out of foul trouble. Has to stay out of foul trouble. Has to stay out of foul trouble because Timothy Eagle Hefe, still raw, still learning. A liability if you play him extended minutes. And uh, one of the reasons why UMBC got back into the game near the end was because Wahab was in foul trouble and they had to go with Eagle Hefe. And Eagle F.A. is just not there yet in terms of a guy who's going to give this seven, eight straight productive minutes. I mean, he plays hard, but it's just not there. The basketball acumen isn't there. So it's still a work in progress. And Timothy, um, um, oh my goodness, uh, the um, other backup center, Tim uh, Malcolm Wilson, excuse me, is just not strong enough or developed enough to be able to uh, soak up some of those minutes. So if Cutis Wahab has to sit for foul trouble, and let's say he had to sit for six minutes, I'm uh, I'm sweating bullets because that ain't going to be good to have Ego Hefe out there for that long. And Georgetown doesn't have it. Georgetown small ball would mean playing Jamarco Pickett at the five, and he's too skinny to be able to play the five against anybody, against any opposition's uh, uh, center. So... You know, the dream of having a four-guard lineup could maybe be Dante Harris or Jalen Harris and Carey and Blair. Maybe Chudier Bile can go ahead and play the number five uh, spot if need be. But Ego Hefe, my goodness gracious, he's a a work in progress. I I sure hope that that young man from the uh, continent of Africa is, uh, you know, doing his work and uh, learning and growing and, uh, you know, on track to graduate and all of those type of things, but good Lord have mercy, man. Right now, he is a definite work in progress. So we will see on Tuesday what it's all about when they play Navy. But, you know, regardless, as I mentioned before, 
I'm just happy to have those guys playing. I'm just happy right now to see the uh, freshmen getting some time, getting some minutes, getting some experience. And uh, yeah, once again, birthday and Christmas and everything else in between in terms of excitement is going to be coming Tuesday afternoon as my Georgetown Hoyas are going to look to improve the 2-0. Remain undefeated. Villanova can't say that. Kentucky can't say that. Kansas can't say that. Auburn can't say that. The Georgetown Hoyers remaining undefeated. Hopefully they get this win on Tuesday against Navy. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, heading down the final stretch, the final time, the final segment of the program, a couple of things that I want to talk about, one non-sports related, another one that's sort of, kind of sports related, sort of, sort of, speaking about Roy Jones Jr. versus Mike Tyson, fought to a draw, it was not officially scored, it wasn't scored officially, but... The celebrity judges from the WBC saw it as a draw. Yahoo Sports scored it six rounds to two, 78-74 for Tyson. They had, what, eight two-minute rounds or something like that. So Saturday night's unofficial score was uh, was judged by uh, Chrissy Martin, who was the former boxing champion, Vinny Pazienza, and Chad Dawson. As I mentioned before, the rounds lasted two minutes each. Each fighter wore 12-ounce gloves. And no headgear. The WBC also created a frontline battle belt, which was awarded to both fighters. What was also awarded to both fighters, disproportionately so, was the payout. Reported amount that Tyson was going to get somewhere around twenty million, and Roy Jones Jr. was going to make around one million. To which Roy Jones, I don't know who your agent is, Roy. I don't know if you're in desperate need of money. I don't know what the situation is, but the fight. Mike Tyson, well, he's going to be making only when he's going to be making twenty million, and you're going to be making somewhere around one. Um, say, man, what in the hell? What in the absolute hell? So, as I mentioned before, it was an eight-round bout at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Tyson last fought in 2005, said he would absolutely do another exhibition fight. Don't blame him for that. The fight had musical performances by rappers French Montana, YG, and Wiz Khalifa, and Grammy-winning artist Neo sang the national anthem. Snoop Dogg, I guess, was the star of the event. He not only performed during the event, he also served as the commentator uh, for all of the fights, was making some pretty good jokes, was having everybody hilarious. It was, it was hilarious. I didn't watch the fight. I didn't buy it, wasn't going to buy it, hadn't had a chance yet to watch it on YouTube. Don't know if I really am, don't know if I have any interest in, well, I do know, I don't have any interest in watching the fight. 
Um, but look, I'm not sitting here and saying it was a farce and it was a joke and people are stupid to uh, spend their money on it or anything like that. Hey, man, it's entertainment. It's entertainment. So if you can afford to spend that money on the fight, and it, by all accounts, it was very well put together, then, I mean, why not? Why not? A form of entertainment. I don't think anybody was walking away talking about, oh, yeah, now I found, I guess now we found our next opponent for Tyson Fury or, you know, or uh, or anything like that. It was uh, just a good deal. So if you wanted to sit there and, uh, you know, laugh and, you know, nothing else to do on a Saturday night, there really weren't any good football games on when uh, Utah was playing Washington. Uh, that was the only other thing in terms of sports entertainment that you could be watching at the time. I mean, why not? Why not? And good for both of those guys. Good for um, Roy Jones at the age of 51 to be able to make a million dollars, even though he should have made more. And God bless Mike Tyson at 54 years old, who can still command that amount of money uh, to do what he loved to do, which is fine. And the fact that he wants to do another exhibition and he's smart enough to realize that, look, I'm not up here speaking about I'm going to make a comeback or do anything nonsensical like that. Both guys came out of the fight with smiles on their faces, uh, no head trauma, uh, no long-lasting injuries from this fight. As I mentioned before, long the check don't bounce. They got themselves a nice chunk of uh, change from the event, so why not? Snoop Dogg was hilarious, very entertaining. Um, it was great. I guess the only person who didn't enjoy the evening was Nate Robinson, who got knocked out cold by some guy named Jake Paul. Paul landed eight punches in less than two rounds against Robinson and scored three knockdowns. Just to show you, Nate, just because you're a great athlete, just because you play football, just because you play basketball at the highest level, doesn't mean that you can step into the uh, square circle and uh, box. So, you know. Overall, great event. I didn't watch it. Not going to watch it. Have no interest in it. But you know what? As I mentioned before, it was from people who uh, paid, paid money to watch it. It was great entertainment. No one came out of there, you know, you know, upset and horrible and this, that, you know, let's put it that way. People who watched that boxing event between Jones and Tyson came away more satisfied than most of the time you watch a boxing match when you guys are scratching your head about how did that decision come about and, you know, all the nonsensical thing that goes into professional fighting for real at the highest level when you have all of these other entities and all these other things going on. The fact that, you know, you had a chance to laugh and you had a chance to watch some entertainment and some, you know, some nostalgia moments and everything with Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. is great. And people up here laughing and joking and even Snoop was uh, bagging and ragging on Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. about being in shape and everything like that. All you motherfuckers out there who are laughing and joking and making fun of Tyson and Roy Jones, would you step into the ring with one of those guys? Shoot, for being 54 years old, Tyson looked great. For being 51 years old, Roy Jones looked pretty good. Yeah, he didn't look like the Roy Jones when he was winning championships. Yeah, Tyson didn't look like Mike Tyson back in 1987. Were you expecting anything different? Those guys are 54 and 51 years old. The fact that those guys can box six rounds, two minutes. Can you do that? Can you do two minutes, one round? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't be, you know, bashing on anybody or making fun of anybody like that in a situation like that. Shit, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be clowning Roy Jones Jr. Would you clown Roy Jones Jr. or Mike Tyson? Talk about, you know, how out of shape they are and they look like two uncles at the barbecue getting in the fight. I tell you one thing, those two uncles at the barbecue, they will whoop your ass in about five seconds. 
They would break your jaw and concuss you in about three seconds flat. So either you have some new respect for uncles who get in fights at barbecues. I don't know what barbecues you'd be going to, but I've never been to a barbecue where uh, I've seen uncles who look like that and who can fight like that and who can punch like that. I'll tell you that for one thing. So, hey, man, you know, more power. God bless Mike Tyson and Roy Jones and all of those guys who uh, came in there and did what they did. A lot better than what I can do, believe me. I mean, I'm going to be the last person. I'm going to be the last person to be laughing at someone's physique. So, you know, I don't care how old or young they are. I've got a whole lot of work to do. I've got too much work to be doing. I've been eating too many Whoppers. I've been eating too many Junior Bacon Cheeseburgers. I've been eating too many fries. I've been eating too many pizzas. I've been eating too many brownies. I've been eating too many nachos. I've been eating too many corny salad burritos with three-roll tacos with guacamole for me to be clowning anybody who's 51 years old that I can still get into a ring and for six rounds, two minutes each, be able to uh, put on a performance like Roy Jones Jr. and Mike Tyson did. So you know, all those people who are, you know, for, you know, you two, you don't have to worry about me clowning you. I give y'all nothing but the highest respect to be able to do what you did at your age. It might not be world-class or anything like that, but shit. You guys would, could end my life within a matter of 10 seconds. So, you know what? I'm not going to go there as far as the clowning is concerned. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I want to respond something outside of the sporting world, outside of the uh, regular sports world. Did you hear this? What's going on? Speaking of uh, beefs, speaking of uh, catfighting or whatever, Halle Berry and Le uh, Lisa Ray McCoy, what's going on with those two? Halle Berry responds to Lisa, Lisa Ray McCoy's bedroom claims that she's not good in bed? What? Let me tell you something right now, Miss McCoy. Let me tell you something right now. When it comes to being good in the boudoir, I can tell you. I can tell you without a single doubt that Halle Berry is fantastic. She is tremendous. Trust me. Trust me. Halle Berry is fantastic in bed. I know because when I dream about having sex with Halle Berry, she is fantastic. I know when I wake up four o'clock in the morning and I'm sweating and my pillow is drooling from the from the from from what I've been doing when I was dreaming about making love to Halle Berry, believe me, she is a fifteen on a scale of ten. So I don't know exactly where Miss McCoy is getting her information from, but from the dreams I've been having for the last I don't know twenty five years plus about Halle Berry, she's fine. She is fantastic in terms of in the boudoir, her actions in the boudoir. Just kidding. So. The key is, despite being, despite Barry being considered one of the sexiest women in Hollywood, considered one of the, considered one of these, who fucking wrote this? She is, for the longest, the sexiest woman in Hollywood. McCoy said she heard, she quote unquote heard, that Barry isn't good in the sex department. McCoy made the claim during a recent episode of Fox Soul Digital Talk Show, Cocktails with Queens, with co-host Claudia Jordan. McCoy, Vivica A. Fox, and Selena Johnson. Sounds like a very nice, attractive lineup. They originally, now how they got originally on the topic, it was, this is according to hotnewhiphop.com. The conversation was originally about producer Hitman's appearance 
on drunk champs and his alleged relationship with uh, Natural Lonigan and Tierra Mari. I, boy, I tell you, I'm really out of the loop here. So this is a conversation that started about something else. So Johnson said, I can't imagine Tony Braxton not being able to put it down with the amount of love songs this girl's got. So basically, I mean, Tony Braxton from uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, went to Springbrook High School right around the corner from me. Seven whole days, just about you, kid. Okay. So, you know, basically it was, hey, you know what, the love songs, if you hear, you know, Tony Braxton sing a love song, then she must be good in the bed. She must be good at sex because, I mean, who can sing like that and be bad at sex, right? Then McCoy all of a sudden said, you don't know what she be doing in the bedroom. It's just like Halle Berry, all words and no action. So it's kind of like, damn. So that was kind of like an outside shot. That was just kind of like a passing shot. That was like a dry pie shot, what McCoy was talking about. We weren't even talking about Halle Berry. You couldn't go to somebody else? I mean, this herd stuff, I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be bringing in there? So Jordan then asked her to clarify, to which McCoy replied, that's what they say, that's what I read, that's what I've heard, that's what they say. Who is they? Where did you read that? Where did you hear that from? Give me some names, give me some peoples. Because for me, it would be like, well, yeah, I heard that, you know, Joe Blow said that, uh, you know, she ain't shit. Or the one guy that she was sleeping with, she he told me that she ain't shit in the bedroom. Or... You know, I talked to David Justice or I talked to, uh, you know, some other folks that were, you know, hooking up with Hallie. And they said that, you know what, she ain't shit in the bedroom. That sort of kind of could have taken, don't be putting people's business in the street like that, number one. But number two, at least that could have somehow absolved you from some of the uh, anger and the bile that would have came your way. Because it seems like to me, you just, you just throwing shade just to throw some shade. You just bullshitting just to be bullshitting with that nonsense. I heard they said I read. Put some names to that bullshit, man. Put some words. Put some action. Give me some evidence. Don't be talking about some innuendos. Don't be talking about, yeah, maybe I heard it through the grapevine, Marvin Gaye, Gladys Knight and the Pips type of shit. Come on, what's up with that? So on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, right before Thanksgiving, Barry tweeted McCoy directly. She said, Miss at uh, the real Lisa Ray one Ask my man, Van Hunt, he'll tell you, he'll tell you all you need to know. Mm. So, you know, look, when it comes to the marriage department, sure, Hallie's been a train wreck. That's because she hasn't met me yet. But she's been an absolute train wreck. She, you know, got divorced from David Justice in 1993 to 97. Eric Benet had a sex addiction. I don't know. Look, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert in the field. But if someone had a sex addiction... Don't you think the cure for that sex addiction would be Halle Berry? But he was married to her from 2001 to 2005. And then Olivier Martinez from 2013 to 2016. She also had a long-term relationship with Canadian model Gabrielle Aubrey, with whom she had a daughter, uh, Nalia, and her son, Mark Maceo, Parker. Her son, Maceo, is with Martinez. One thing I will give um, Halle Berry, there was a little bit of shit that came her way when she started dating a couple of white guys. And it's kind of like, oh, Holly, this, that, and the other. Like, look, hey, look, man. Hallie was in a lot of relationship with black men who didn't treat her right. So I, I kind of can't get down on Hallie. I can't, can't get down on why you leave in the neighborhood, why you going across the tracks and everything like that when you want to all of a sudden start dating white men. Number one, 
I don't know this because I don't swing that way. Um, for those who do, God bless you. Wonderful. I have no animus, have no anger, none of that stuff towards you. But I, I don't know what a really good looking guy looks like. I don't know what an attractive guy looks like. I know what a guy looks like who the women might find attractive, but I can't sit there with any type of man and be like, ooh, man, he's gorgeous. Or, ooh, good Lord have mercy. If I was gay, boy, would I get on him or anything like that? For those who do, God bless you. For those who have that talent and still can remain heterosexual and stay that way, hey, God bless you. Hooray for you. Me, I can't do that. But, you know, all the people, I guess, all the females, when they were talking about this model, this white guy, um, Aubrey, uh, Gabriel Aubrey, I guess he was dating a couple of white guys where, you know, the, the sisters were sitting there talking about, well, you know, if you're going to go that way, I mean, you know, you, if you're going to go, if you're going to go that way, that's the way to go. If you're going to be, you know, if you're going to be crossing over the tracks, if you're going to be going across the lawn, if you're going to be going across the uh, street to, uh, you know, see somebody else. You know, from another race and face and place. Uh, it's good that he looks like that and this, that and the other. So, Hallie, I can't be mad at you. Black women were saying this. Hallie, I can't be mad at you. If you're going to leave the nest, if you're going to leave to go across the street, then I can't get mad at you for going to see someone who looks like that. So, you know, more power to you on that one. So, I guess I, you know, I really don't care who she's marrying or dating or sleeping or having children with. I mean, she ain't doing it with me. So, I mean, you know, why do I give a shit? But, uh, yeah, so, you know, Hallie has had her issues with men. She hadn't had, she hadn't found her, uh, she, had, she hadn't had that Ruby D type of a deal, you know, I mean, but, I mean, maybe somebody in Hollywood, really, if you think about it, man, maybe somebody in Hollywood who isn't, like, going through some shit, you know, I mean, we've gone through that Jada and Will bullshit where she was talking about, what was she was talking about that, uh, you know, she was dating somebody or she was sleeping with somebody a lot younger, a lot younger than her and entanglement. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that she was in entanglement with some young guy and, you know, because she thought Will and her was on the outs. So, you know, the guy that they brought in to help because I guess emotionally he was a he was a wreck and he needed some help and he needed some guidance and he needed some mentoring. Well, I mean, Jada gave him some mentoring and then some. And Will was sitting there going, really, you're going to play me like that? Even though, I mean, you know, as much as I love Will, Big Willie style and all that, I'm quite sure if you peel back some of the things that Will Smith had done, I mean, he's done Jada just as dirty as Jada has done Will. So, look, that's 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 their business. So whatever, you know, I got other things to worry about. But, man, it's like, you know, you, you start getting in that, that rarefied air, man. I mean, no wonder Dave Chappelle hangs out with his uh, family in Ohio, and we rarely see his kids, and we rarely see his wife. A lot of the times, that, that's the way to go, man. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not married, so what do I know? But it's just like, whew, this nonsense with Lisa Marie, Lisa Ray McCoy and uh, Halle Berry. Come on, y'all. Come on now. I mean, you know, we're, we're right now trying to make that move. We're trying to make that turn. It's all about unity. It's all about togetherness. Black women can't be going at each other like that, even though, you know, I mean, I mean, we talk about some beefs between, between males and males and this, that, and the other. I mean, when you got two sisters going at each other, it can be, uh, it can be vicious. I mean, women go at each other hard. I mean, even men who don't hate like each other, who want to see their demise are like, damn, I ain't going to go to that level. I mean, women are very vicious. And look, Lisa Marie, I, I don't, I don't know what her, I don't know. I don't know if she was just trying to be funny. I don't know if there's any type of a ill will, no love lost between the two. I don't know what their relationship is. 
who knows why she would kind of go out there and throw that out. And, you know, Hallie came back at her, all in jest. She wasn't talking about, well, just ask my man if I'm good in bed, biatch. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. So I don't know. I don't know what the relationship is between this, these two. Maybe it's just the work. I don't know. It's not like, you know, Lisa Ray was hitting her about, you know, her father being a lowlife or, you know, something really, really personal about that. So who knows? But, I mean, you know, Lisa Ray, I... I Remember Lisa Ray McCoy from Single Ladies, which had to be one of the worst shows. It used to come on VH1, and it had uh, Stacey Dash before, you know, she sold her soul to white folks and became Stacey Sellout Trash. And uh, they had the white woman who was a good-looking white woman. Uh, it was like a Friends type of version, you know, uh, some deal like that, and just bad acting, bad storytelling, and boy, I tell you, Lisa, Mer Lisa Ray, that woman could not act. That woman could not act. That woman could not act. That woman, she better not be talking about Hollywood being bad to black women, getting roles and this, that, and the other, because all Hollywood has to do is say, really? We actually gave you a job working as a regular actress in Hollywood. Don't be talking to me about we don't give black women an opportunity to act in Hollywood. We give black women an opportunity to act in Hollywood, even if they're no good. And let me tell you something, Lisa, Mer Lisa Ray, you're a very attractive woman, but you ain't attractive enough to overcome your lack of ability to act. I mean, Halle Berry could just sit there and not say a word back in 1992, 1995, and she would win an Oscar every time that she was on the screen. That's how good looking that goddess was. But Lord have mercy, Lisa, Lisa Ray, you were not good looking enough to overcome how bad that show was and how bad that acting was on VH1, Living uh, uh, the Single Ladies. Now, the next question you might ask me is, so if that was so bad, why were you watching it? It's the same reason why people watch The Kardashians or watch Trainwrecks or watch Jason Lyric or watch, um, or watch that movie with Tupac and Janet Jackson. Boy, I forgot the name of that movie, but boy, that was bad. Or maybe like watching um, um, a really bad movie or a really bad train wreck or a really bad car crash. I mean, sometimes it's just like, I don't know. It's like, why do people cut themselves and say that it's enjoyment? I don't know. I don't know what I was going. I don't know what was going on in my life that would want me to torture myself by watching single ladies every Monday night and somehow, some way, getting some type of entertainment or amusement from it. I mean, Stacey Dash was still looking good at that point. As I mentioned before, the white woman on that show was very attractive. Lisa Ray was also an attractive woman. So I guess it was just the vanity of them, of how they looked, only going to the surface and not digging deeper. And as I mentioned before, I would just sit there and just be like, God, this show is so fucking bad. The acting is so fucking bad. The plot work is so fucking bad that I just couldn't keep myself away from it. So, you know, I don't know. But, you know, Lisa, Lisa Ray was married a couple of times, and that didn't work out. In fact, she married some guy, Michael Misnick, Misnick or something like that, the first ever premiere of the Turk in Calicos Islands from 2006 and 2008. In fact, during that time she was married, she served as First Lady of Turks in Calicos. They announced in 2008 that they were divorcing, and then... Misnick resigned from office in March of 2009 after an investigation found clear signs of corruption involving selling off public land to its own investors. So she married a crook, uh, you know, a, a highfalutin crook, 
a uh, white collar crook, but a crook nonetheless. So, I mean, you know, ladies, can we get it together, please? You know, Malcolm Martin didn't die for you two ladies to be doing this in public. Please, let's all learn to love each other. And if you can't love each other, Hallie, you can definitely love me. I guess he's with this guy, Van Hunt. I never, never heard of the guy. Never heard of the guy, but God bless her. I just hope all the women involved are uh, doing well. Vivica A. Fox, I mean, she's another woman that's had um, troubles with love. She was dating 50 Cent for a while and a couple of other guys. And, you know, so she's, she's had her issues. But hope they have a video. I mean, that's one show where we're speaking about. What's the show called again? Uh, da, 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 da. It is called, hold on, I'm getting there. It is called Soul... Uh, it's called Fox Soul, Souls Digital Talk Show. Now, what is it? McKay, uh, McCoy made the claim during a recent episode of Fox Souls Digital Talk Show. Oh, Cocktail with Queens. Cocktails with Queens. Claudia Jordan, very attractive. Vivica A. Fox, still very attractive. Selena Johnson, very attractive. So, I get this is just the... Uh, Cocktail with uh, the Nubian queens who still look good, who still look really good. I mentioned before, man, they're right in this age range where I think, where I am right now as a man and as a human being in the age group that I'm in, that this is the this is the sweet spot for females in terms of how attractive that they are all around. I mean, when you start getting to like age 39 and continues to like age... 52, 53, I mean, that's, for me, that's where women are the the most attractive for me, all around. Not only do they still look good enough, but uh, also just everything else-wise, you know, they, they've got some scars from just living, you know, they've got the battle scars and everything like that, so, I mean, you know, the 22 and 24 and 25-year-old kids who just, you know, are just now finding out what life is like. To me, not as attractive. Not as attractive. You still look good, no doubt about it. You still look good. Looking wise, you might be, uh, you know, you might be at the zenith of all that nonsense. But just overall, you know, you put a little bit more pounds on the body and everything like that. You fill out the frame a little bit more. I mean, as the females get older. So, yeah, 30, you know, 37, 38, 39. For me, that's where you really start, you know, being that time period of where you are the most sexiest, the most attractive. As I'm taking a look at Katie Turr right now on MSNBC. That woman is a little bit older. She's not in her 20s anymore. She's not in her early 30s anymore. And that is one good-looking woman. Ooh, that's a good-looking woman. So, yeah. Sweet spot, 39, 52. Enjoy, reward, love each other. So, Queens, cocktails with Queens. I'm going to have to check that out. All right, I am done. I am out of here. I want to thank everybody for... Listening to the podcast, I am going to uh, mix this all together and then not wake up until Wednesday afternoon. No, I'm just joking. That's how tired I am. But um, I want to thank you very much for listening to the program. Be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Do what you need to do to uh, make this place, to make this world, to make this community a better place to be. Shall we? And I'm speaking mainly to the young folks. The old folks, my generation... That might be way beyond our capacity to change anything. But for the younger generation, for uh, you kids and everybody else, please help us out. Teach us. Teach my, teach my generation, the generation before me, 
and the generation after me what love, unity, understanding, and harmony is all about moving forward. We would appreciate it. Music.